0: one, two, three, testing one, two, three. This is Radio Free Mormon on the air, broadcasting behind enemy lines. Tonight's episode, Red Handed, how the first presidency got caught breaking the law. On tonight's episode, we have a very special guest who I'll introduce here in a moment. But first, I want to let you know, we're going to be talking about the latest issue and release from the Widows Might Report. The Widows Might Report has been ongoing now for approximately a year. And what it is, is financial reports related to the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints that are done by financial experts. There is a consortium of experts in the field who have gone over the available data that the LDS Church has on its finances in order to try and find out from this data and research into what it is exactly the LDS church is doing with its money in a number of different categories. Now, of course, this wouldn't be necessary if the LDS church were simply transparent with its finances, but the LDS church is famously not transparent with its finances. And therefore, this individual and group of individuals ended up deciding, well, based upon our expertise and what we do for a career with financial management and investments, let's see if we can look at the data that is available, the partial data, and from that data, draw conclusions and see if we can figure out what's really going on. The first report was the launch report in 2021. So it's possible it's been going on for over a year, maybe approaching two years at this point. You can find this at Widow's Might Report. That's might, MITE, M I T E, widowsmightreport.wordpress.com. If you go to your Google or search function and type in Widow's Might report, it'll bring it right up for you. And you'll see that on the launch page, they have a listing of all the different reports they've done from the Widow's Might 2021, which is titled the Launch Report. They have one on LDS Charities, one on Caring for Those in Need, Sustainability or Greenwashing, Enzyme Peak, SEC Investigation and Settlement, and they have several others. But the one that we're going to talk about tonight is the one that really doesn't have a lot to do with numbers and that's good because i'm really bad with numbers although i have someone on the show who's very good with numbers this is the sec investigation and settlement now there's been a great deal of talk about this sec scandal and how members of the first presidency were found to have their hands in the cookie jar when it came to defrauding the federal government and directing that people who worked for them defraud the federal government That's been gone over quite a bit. The point of tonight's show is not to rehash that, though we will just a little bit in order to make sure everybody's up to speed, but to present the new investigation and the new research that has just been discovered actually within the past week by the Widows Might Report. They've been burning the midnight oil to bring us this new SEC investigation and settlement document. If you go to that document on the webpage and click it, it will bring up the report. And the report has 24 pages in it, although the last couple of pages are footnotes and sources, but I want to bring on at this point, because we're going to go through this document and share these startling new revelations with you. I want to bring on the show a professor from, well, I better let him introduce himself. It's in Illinois, I'm pretty sure, and it's either Illinois State or University of Illinois, and I'm sure I'm making a horrible mistake there if I confuse the two. This is Spencer Anderson. Spencer Anderson, how are you today?
1: Doing great, RFM. Thanks for having me on. I appreciate it. It's at the University of Illinois. Thank you. (laughs) It doesn't matter. I mean, we are in the Big Ten. Oh, okay. Fantastic. I'm really glad to hear
0: No, I know that I went to a university, the University of Texas, and if someone had called it something else, it would have been considered to be highly insulting, especially if that other something were Texas
1: (laughs) A&M. But regardless,
0: you are a professor. I got that part right
1: yes i'm a professor of accounting at the university of illinois i'm actually leaving the university of illinois for indiana university uh just the state over in in just a a month or so Um, that's where i got my phd Um, and i do research on accounting issues and so i look at how investors might react to certain disclosures i look at disclosure law um, disclosure requirements um, for companies and and um, how investors respond essentially, to those disclosures and those disclosure requirements. And, and so this actually, is kind of right at my wheelhouse.
0: Right. And you've actually been involved in the creation of some of these reports. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, I would say I'm I'm definitely independent of the consortium of Widow's Might. But um, I was asked to to kind of help on Mormon Stories podcast to kind of relay what Widow's Might is doing. And so I don't consider myself part of the widow's might, but um, ev- occasionally I get uh, emails saying, this is the latest report that's coming through. Do you have any comments or feedback? And uh, usually it's already really, really good. <laughs> so I don't have a lot of feedback to give, but-
0: But you have um, given
1: some, right? Yeah, sure, yeah. There's been some feedback, some things back and forth. and And one of the nice things about this group is that they always are willing to receive any feedback you have. So if you have new information for them, that they might not know about just go ahead and send it to them and and they'll incorporate it into their into their analyses
0: yeah it is a work in progress and my understanding of this based upon the fact that i know the person the main person the head honcho who's behind this and i know that you do too and of right. course that's the person who's sending it out but there's a consortium of individuals and you have operated as a consultant there are numerous people that this has been sent out to for comments for corrections for updates for criticism. And the strange thing is that I'm one of those people too.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, (laughs) I've made a lot of of changes,
0: but the difference is, is that the reason it's sent to me is because I don't know anything about finances and investment and I'm the guy on the street that it gets sent to, to review, to say, okay, I understand this, but this, this is too complicated for me. I don't get it. And then they try and make it a little, they dumb it down for me, basically.
1: Yeah. I mean I, I what I've heard about your contribution RFM is that you've done a great job at leaving taking things out that don't that are unnecessary and so I think that the way that you frame things and the way that you're able to communicate has been invaluable to the project overall. I think that you know a lot of people have said the people that I've talked to that are part of this group um, have said that you've been really helpful so I think you're just being modest here I'm going to choose to believe you. <laughs>
0: Okay. Well, I'm so excited about this because there are at least five bombshells in this new report. And so let's get to that. I'm going to pull it up on my screen. And the first page, we're going to try and spend like five or six minutes on each page. So this doesn't get terribly long. We want to try and hit the high points, but this does cover a little bit of the background. Page number one talks about the church and Enzyme Peak settlement with the SEC. So this whole SEC scandal that just happened it summarizes it and it starts off at the beginning with by the way break in if you have anything to say i was going to pop through this because most of this and the next couple pages are sort of laying the groundwork which a lot of our listeners already know and if not by the way you can go back and listen to you could listen to that mormon stories episode i know there's a part one there's a part two and maybe someday before christmas there'll be a part three I have faith that there will be a part three on that at some point. By the way, today's date that we're recording this is April 29th, 2023, as a benchmark. But here it is: the church in Enzyme Peak. Oh, I should also say that on Mormonism Live, Bill Real and I did an episode about this as well. The church and the church and Enzyme Peak settlement with the SEC. So, bullet point number one: a 2018 report found the church secretly held. billion in the U.S. stock market in 12 shell companies. And this was the the leak that happened in 2018. And anybody who wasn't hiding under a rock heard about it at the time. The Securities and Exchange Commission, or SEC, opened an investigation into the church and its investment management auxiliary, Enzyme Peak. So the whole thing about Enzyme Peak, the way I envision it in my head, Spencer, is we've got the LDS church over here on one side and right next to it is the Ensign Peak, maybe a little bit down from it, right? Because the first presidency is in charge of Ensign Peak as they are in charge of everything else that goes on in the church. And back about 25 years ago now, they decided they were going to create an investment group that was specifically charged with investing tithing money or church money. They weren't going to have any other job. They weren't going to do any kind of private stuff. This is simply an investment firm that's going to invest church money. And they started it up with $7 billion that they happened to have lying around. And they've done very well since then. But the main thing I want to talk about is that the head of Enzyme Peak, who for the entire time that was relevant to this was Roger Clark. The head of Enzyme Peak worked for the first presidency, and took his orders from the first presidency as to how to do his job. Now, obviously, the first presidency doesn't know how to invest as well as Roger Clark does, even though President Iring was, as I understand it, a professor at Stanford on finances. Is that correct? Business law or business running businesses?
1: Yeah, I think business administration. I, I'm not exactly sure. I can't remember. But yeah, he was. And, and Roger Clark himself has... A, a pretty good pedigree in terms of his education as well. I think he was also at Stanford. At least he has done work with people at Stanford, and he became an assistant professor in the Marriott School of Business in the 70s at BYU.
0: Oh, so there's he a also with BYU and Roger Clark as well. Yes, yeah. Interesting, because Roger Clark's going to become very important as we go on. But still, this is the the setup and the background. So the Securities and Exchange Commission, they opened the investigation after the whistleblower leaked about the 37 or excuse me, the $32.7 billion in the U.S. stock market in 12 shell companies. This investigation starts and it goes on for five years. And then just recently, we found out what the result was. On February 21st, 2023, the SEC agreed to settle all pending charges against the church and against Enzyme Peak. Enzyme Peak agreed to settle allegations that it violated federal securities disclosure law for over 20 years, and as a result, they agreed to pay a civil pen- penalty of $4 million. Now, in addition to that, the LDS Church agreed to settle allegations that it was responsible for causing Enzyme Peak's violations of the law, and they were assessed and paid a civil penalty of $1 million dollars so there's the first page Do you have anything you want to add to that spencer
1: well just that the penalties are separate it, it might seem really odd that the penalties are separate between the church and Ensign peak but this was done purposely by the sec to ensure that people the public knew that the church was involved in this um, because of this misconception that enzyme peak might be seen as a client of the church whereas rather than thinking of the enzyme peak as the bank that the church uses Mm. the church the church is the bank right It, it it owns enzyme peak it owns the bank and so um even though essentially this four and one million is coming out of the same pot it was important it was an important distinction uh to for the sec to say look the church was liable here directly
0: Right. This isn't a situation where the church just says to Roger Clark, hey, go run this and make money for us and let us know how you're doing every now and again. Right. Right. They were in it up to their eyeballs as far as their ability to direct what Roger Clark did or did not do insofar as the way he was administering these investment portfolios. And we'll get to more of that here in a second. Are you ready to go to page two?
1: Yeah. I just add also, if I had to guess, I've had, I've heard some people say that, well, then why did they assess only four or only 1 million to the church and 4 million to enzyme peak? Does that not assess sort of relative blame? And I think that that is what was going on. I think that in the end, Roger Clark should have known better. And Roger Clark should have been the one who said, no, I have a responsibility to, um, to uphold the law Um, it doesn't mean that the church wasn't liable or putting pressure on Roger Clark, but at some point, the investment manager that's the expert in this field should have definitely done something differently. So I think that that's probably where where we get the four versus 1 million. Absolutely.
0: I hear what you're saying. Yeah, all this money comes out of the same pot, but it was very important to the SEC to say, hey, LDS Church, you are involved in this. You're liable. You're responsible to some degree. And so we're going to assess 1 million to you and $4 million to your investment arm, the Enzyme Peak. So page two, there are two SEC documents related to the settlement. The SEC closed the matter by settling with the church and Enzyme Peak. So it didn't go to trial. They reached an agreed settlement. And the SEC issued two related documents. The first thing the SEC released was a press release Now, I want to be very clear about this because the church also issues a press release at the same or close to the same time, but this is the SEC's press release, and in addition to that, the SEC released their cease and desist order, which I believe was nine pages long, and that's where it sets out all the details regarding what their findings were and indeed what Enzyme Peak and the church agreed to as the findings. And that's the document that we went over in some detail on a recent Mormonism live show. Now, the nine-page order, that's the cease and desist order. The nine-page order was mutually crafted and agreed upon. This is so important, Spencer, at least to me. Because this isn't something that the SEC says, okay, we're going to have a settlement and we're go- this is our order and you guys got to pay this money. No, the very language of the nine-page order was crafted and agreed upon by all parties. The church agreed to the language that was in the order. Now, of course, this is after uh, quite a bit of time, I'm sure, of negotiation and talking behind the scenes between the lawyers, but it cannot be overstressed that the church agreed to the language in the order. Your thoughts about that, Spencer?
1: Yeah, so they don't have what Bill would call, Bill Real would call, what is it? Deniable plausibility. Deniable plausibility. <laughs> um, they don't have plausible deniability. They can't really deny it. They can't. Um, uh, there's no. There's no out for them. Essentially, they have accepted what is in this nine-page order. Now, with the press release, like obviously that one was not negotiated language, and so right. that's really tells you what the SEC wants to tell the public. And Mm -hmm. so both of them are useful because from the press release, you see what the SEC is crafting or what its perspective is. And from the press or sorry, from the cease and desist order, you get what the church is willing to admit to, essentially. Right.
0: And so in this cease and desist order mutually agreed upon by the parties, the church cannot deny any of the allegations that are made in the order. And the reason they can't deny him is because they were part and parcel of crafting them. They've agreed to them. This would be in the criminal field, which is what I've been in for 33 years, as opposed to high finance. In the criminal field, this would be like a guy going in and pleading guilty to a crime and then later on saying he was innocent.
1: Yeah, yeah. Or yeah, I think that that's kind of that totally makes sense. And And if we later look at the church's press release, right, where they sort of try and deny it, um, it's a little interesting to juxtapose those two.
0: Right. But what I mean is when you plead guilty, there's a nine or 11 page form. You go in front of a judge and you adopt everything that's in there. You're asked, have you read it? Uh, Do you agree to it? Do you understand it? All these questions before a judge will accept the plea to make sure it represents what it is that the defendant is saying. And he's saying he's guilty. So he can't come back at a later time and then deny the allegations that are in it. I mean, he can, I suppose, but it's not going to have a whole lot of force because he's already pleaded guilty. So let's go back to page two. Clues. Now we get into the Sherlock Holmes mode. Clues reveal the extent of negotiation over language in the order. Now, this was really interesting that widows might figure this out. And this was a recent revelation to them as they're looking at the language in the order versus the language in the. Let me see here. In the SEC press release. Yeah. The language in the SEC order versus the language in the SEC press release and looking at it really closely, what widows might discover is that there are clues in there that reveal the extent of negotiations over the language the church agreed to put in the order, such as, and this is the example, such as terminology for the LLCs. We know that there were 13 of them total by the time that they were done in the cease and desist order. These 13 companies are called clone companies right? Yeah, that's right. Never in the SEC order are these referred to as shell companies. And that's interesting to me because I have an idea as to what a shell company is, but I'm not so sure what a clone company is. To me, a shell company, it sounds like something where you're trying to get away with something and hide something under the shell. A clone company, that doesn't seem to strike me as that bad because I've never heard of it before. Have you heard of what a clone company is?
1: No, this is my first time hearing what a cl- of a clone company, but a shell company has already a negative, like you said, it has a negative connotation already assigned to it, and so obviously the church would not want it to be called a shell company. So the SEC crazy. in its press release c- goes ahead and calls it what it is, a shell company. This is, but so in the negotiated game. language, they they were re- the church was obviously, you know, really careful about what message was being. Portrayed, and so they wanted to use the word clone.
0: So apparently in the negotiations, by the way, let me get to the statistics first. In the SEC order, shell company is never mentioned. These 13 companies are never called shell companies. They are only called clone companies and they're called clone companies 36 times. In the SEC press release, however, where the SEC is talking about its version of things independent of the negotiated order. They never use the term clone company because I guess they've never heard of it either like you, Spencer, but they do talk about shell companies and they do talk about shell companies five times. So five times in the SEC press release, they mentioned shell companies, zero times do they mention clone companies. In the SEC order that was negotiated with the church, they never mentioned shell companies, but they do mention clone companies 36 times. What do you make of that, Spencer?
1: I mean, clearly the church is is already trying to massage the message through this negotiated order. And what that tells me is that this is the when you read the negotiated cease and desist order, this is the most positive light we're going to be able to shed on while still remaining truthful, uh on this situation. And so <laughs> If the church is already negotiating the language such as using clone company versus shell company, and this is the most positive portrayal of the event that the church can come up with, um, as we're going to see, it's not a very positive portrayal um, overall. And what that means is that, you know, uh, really the church is, has no standing in a lot of this. And so that's where that's where I go with it. Yeah, what, I, um,
0: what I hear them doing is saying shell company that sounds bad that's what we did but let's use a term that nobody else has ever used before so it won't sound as bad
1: right yes
0: okay well that's a fascinating tidbit that has been figured out in the past week I think it is by widow's might if we go to Pace, the yes? the
1: church is good at creating new terms too you know like they they can redefine translate they can redefine nah. horse. So, you know, they, they're, they, they're already well adept to this kind of uh, language adaptation, I think.
0: Oh, yeah. He who controls the definitions controls everything. If you get to choose how to define the words in any argument, then you win every argument. Right. That's why it's important that we all have a common understanding of what words mean so we can communicate.
1: Yeah, that's what is ideally would happen, right? Um right. but can I you don't want to communicate...
0: To- when you don't want to communicate, you change the definitions without right. letting the other side know that you've changed them.
1: That's right. Well, this I, I want to go
0: George Orwell. I think.
1: Yeah, I, I want to go back a little bit to the fact that they settled, um, um, because some people, and you're a lawyer, RFM, but some people would argue that when you settle, it's because you're not that there's no strong case against you. And so the church settled because really the SEC didn't have a case. And I want to highlight the SEC's specific language. They have their own language in terms of why they might settle. And this comes straight from the SEC website. It says, under existing policy, the Division of Enforcement recommends that the commission settle a case only when our informed judgment tells us that the settlement agreement is within the range of outcomes we reasonably can expect if we litigate through trial. And so. The the SEC is not settling because they don't have a case, they're settling because they've been able to settle at an amount that they think that they would have reasonably gotten had they litigated, had they gone through trial anyway. And what this does is it allows them to expedite the process, save costs in terms of litigation. But I that apologetic I've heard several times now, that because there was this settlement, the church doesn't isn't guilty. It's uh, sometimes I feel like there's this connotation around settlement, but when you settle with the SEC, from the SEC's perspective, they already have to go through a determination process where they evaluate and estimate how much they would get in trial. And it has to be already that settlement amount has to be within that range that they expect they would get out of trial. Um, so I don't know if your thoughts are, if I don't know if it's similar in all settlement cases RFM, but I thought that was important that This isn't an out for the church. It isn't uh, like the SEC didn't have enough evidence and so they were just settling. Or the church could have won if they had gone through litigation. That's not what the SEC is saying.
0: No, and I'm sure, of course, that people who are on the side of the church and want a special plead for the church would categorize this as, oh, this is sort of a nuisance fee that they're just paying to make this lawsuit go away. Exactly. On the other hand, in the criminal field, I'm trying to think here and I I can't remember. I mean, I've done so many plea deals of course in my life. The vast majority of cases end up in some kind of a plea deal. If all the cases that were charged went to trial, the entire criminal justice system would come to a grinding halt. So, but I I don't think I've ever heard anybody talk about, well, he took a plea deal therefore he was innocent. You know? It just doesn't right. compute to me, right? All right. So, let's go on to The next page now, which is page three. Now, this is very important because a lot of people that I've talked to who are trying to make excuses for the church on this, they're talking about this as if these 13F filings, these quarterly filings that are required to be made by investment companies and business managers on any investment accounts that have over $100 million in it. That's correct, right, Spencer?
1: yes that's right any anything over 100 million it's actually going to change to be over 3 billion soon but it hasn't changed since 1975 it's been over 100 million it's gonna, so they're really looking at like big big money players it's going like to change big, to
0: 3 billion
1: yes okay. 3 billion is going to be the new minimum which the church also uh, obviously crosses that threshold
0: yeah. So of course, the idea being is that if you're a big enough investment company where you've got over $100 million, and of course, that was in the 70s and inflation and everything, it'll be $3 billion. But if you're a big player in this, then you have added responsibilities of notifying the government and keeping the government informed about some aspects. And you have to do it on a quarterly basis. And this is what are the 13F filings. So I don't know anything about finance. Most people I talk to about this don't know anything about finance like you do. But as I've been talking with you and widows' might and other people, I'm starting to understand that as a small business owner myself, with my law firm, right, I don't have any employees. So I'm the smallest of small law firms. And yet with that comes obligations to file. It used to be quarterly. Now it's actually monthly filings with the Department of Revenue in this state to pay B&O tax. I have to pay or file quarterly IRS tax forms. And this is just, oh, and also have to pay every month. Oh, that's part of the B&O tax where I have to pay it. I have to calculate it, file the form, pay it, yada, yada. But these are the two main forms that I have to do in addition to my IRS filings. And by that, I mean the one where I actually have to pay the money. So, I've got monthly things that I have to file as part of my business with the B&O tax. I've got quarterly filings with the IRS, and then I have the one big yearly filing with the IRS. And so this is just part of what I do. And my understanding is, is that if you're running an investment company, that these 13F filings are just about as routine and simple to do as what it is that I have to do here in my humble law practice, is that right, Spencer?
1: It is a very, very simple filing. It only has three parts to it, which you know we could talk about. But it's just—it's basically just a cover page, a little summary um, document that's usually another page, and then just—you uh, know—you just send an Excel file with the companies that you own and how much you own at a certain date. And so it's really nothing. It's not not that burdensome. It would maybe take one of your staff members, you know, an hour to finish and complete. Um, It's not this is something that they already have the information readily available. It's it's one of those things where each quarter the information doesn't change that much in the first two pages. So you probably just copy and paste what you had before. So this is just really, really a simple requirement. And importantly, it's why does this requirement exist? It's because. The SEC exists, it it was first created in 1934 using what's called the Securities Exchange Act. That essentially created the SEC. The existence of the SEC is to protect the public and to ensure that there's trust within our capital market system. And what I mean by that is that if I'm an investor and I want to invest in a company, I want to have this um, connotation or this notion. That um, there is no unfair or deceptive acts or practices in being engaged in in commerce, and that way I have a fair shake when it comes to my potential investment. If there's some person or some company in the background that's moving all of the, you know, that's you know, that's uh, playing with all the strings, that's the puppet master of the market. I'm not going to invest in the stock market. And trust has been eroded in the stock market when that type of thing happens. And so all of the SEC's requirements for disclosure and things like that are to promote trust within the capital markets. And I'm Um, sure that
0: the year that this was passed in 1934 is significant since that was five years after the huge stock market crash in 29.
1: That's right. It was created in direct response to the Great Depression and the market crash back then. Because really what uh, what keeps the, you know, the the gears running of the our entire capital market system is trust in the system. If we lost trust in the system, and the SEC is in charge with ensuring trust continues in the system, then it would come to a grinding halt. Everything would, that's, that's how our capital market system works, is we need to operate with trust. If there wasn't trust, then cost of capital raising would go way up. So essentially, interest rates would go super high, um our premium for for you know if like a company wanted to raise money they would have to pay a much higher premium in borrowing rates um and and so if you decide that you want to have investors in your company um then you publicly register with the SEC and you have to follow the SEC's rules and likewise if you are a big investor in the market you have to file some forms to the SEC so that investors are protected and they um, are in the know. So the entire purpose of the 13F is to let the public know who the big investors are and what they're investing in. That's the whole purpose of the 13F. And I I make that emphatic statement because that's that's the exact thing that the church was trying to avoid. So you can't get around that like the entire purpose of a 13F is to not hide And they were trying to hide it wasn't as though they were you know engaging in some sort of tangential uh, misreporting no they were they were going against the whole core underlying uh, uh, what do you call it not the letter of the law but the spirit of the law of of the 13f
0: right well part of this trust that is needed in the stock market or anything else i expect is also dependent upon transparency and this right. is what they're trying to do. They're trying to legalize or force and compel anybody who's got more than a hundred billion dollars, excuse me, a hundred million dollars in the stock market to be transparent about a number of things that are important to the SEC. And now you've got the church interfacing with this federal law through the Enzyme Peak Advisors account. And what we find is that the church which is not known for transparency with its history, with its dealings behind the scenes. It keeps everything secret, almost every, lots of things secret. Let's put it that way. So the church is not known for transparency. They come into a place that requires them to be transparent. And what they choose is to continue not being transparent. In some ways, the LDS church and transparency are like two ships passing
1: in the night. Uh, it makes me wonder. I've always wondered. I'd like to ask some faithful members: What is it about church doctrine? What is it? What is it about transparency that the, that you're against? Is there any? Do you have any good reason for the church to not be transparent? Um, I, I've I've never heard a good answer from. I, I, it's not in the Book of Mormon, you know. It's not like a principle of the gospel to hide information. I, I it's it's not doctrinal pearls before swine my good professor pearls guess, before swine I, I guess that could be one that could there be a, one cl- ch- cherry entire, scripture.
0: yeah there's an entire culture of secrecy in Mormonism yes. for whatever reason like you say where is it in the book of Mormon it's not but the LDS church has from its inception in Joseph Smith's uh administration In the church and ever since had this culture of secrecy and some of it was maybe imposed upon them or at least it was felt it was imposed upon them by non-mormons from the outside world putting pressure on them to do things they didn't want but i mean it starts at the temple and then it goes out from there
1: right yeah it's just it's just so odd that it's so prevalent but at a principles level it's it's not founded in any core virtues or principles or anything like that you know what I mean and I think everybody deep down knows that there's nothing good about obfuscation that there's something uh, wrong with it and yet it's so so prevalent in almost every corner that you look at in the church it's it's odd
0: yeah I could go on and on about that but we won't but definitely a culture of secrecy and I guess our listeners can come up with examples of their own lives in the church if they happen to be members so let's see here. Oh, this and also, not only is this a very basic and rote kind of process, filing these 13F forms, it's also been around for a long time, not since 1934, but since the 70s. So the Exchange Act, I'm still on page three, the, the Exchange Act from 1934 has been amended many times, of course, often in response to crises or bad actors, which is what usually causes amendments in any kind of statute. Um But it's been amended many times. And in 1975, Section 13F was adopted by Congress as a part of Exchange Act amendments, as I say, in 1975. So it's been since 1975, since I was 15 years old. I didn't know about this at the time. But as of that year, it was required that investment firms start filing these quarterly 13 f Statements. And Section 13F requires quarterly disclosure. I start talking about it, and then I find out the widow's mite is already talking about it again in the next paragraph. Section 13F requires quarterly disclosure of stocks held if the market value of those securities is over $100 million and the firm has discretion over buying and selling. Well, I think that generally a firm or an investment firm would have at least some discretion. Over buying and selling. But those are the two requirements in order yeah. to uh make it so that you have to file your 13F quarterlies.
1: Yeah, the distinction there, uh RFM, is that if you're like a firm like let's say Robinhood, where you're just taking people's money and you're just fulfilling market orders on behalf of someone else, you don't have authority or discretion there. You're basically just filling the 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 asks of every of your customers. Okay. So, so that's the difference, right? So they're the ones making the investment decisions on, on their own behalf, rather than somebody telling them what to invest in. Yeah.
0: All right. One of the main reasons we got you on the show for your expertise, which is far above mine. Yeah. So, but in terms of a, an investment company that we think of as a firm like that, correct, always yes. going to be somebody who's buying, selling, investing in this, selling off these stocks, buying these stocks, blah, blah, blah. And Correct. this is exactly, of course, what EP or Enzyme Peak was doing.
1: Yes. And the 13F requirement has not, it started in 1975 and it has not changed very much since 1975. So it's it's a very easy thing to follow.
0: It has been in effect during the careers of pretty much anybody who's in this field. Would that be fair to say?
1: Yeah, absolutely.
0: Okay. Because that is 25 30, uh, 53
1: years ago. Yeah. Even Roger Clark, who's up there in age, he was, a, he was around this was around with when he was in his profession. So, yeah.
0: so the last part on page three says the law applies to all institutional shareholders, including nonprofits and charities, such as the church and its auxiliaries. Okay. So it applies to the church. Once it started in Zain Peak in, is it 2009?
1: Um, enzyme peak, I think started, well, if you look at, at Roger Clark's, uh, bio, it says that he started in enzyme peak is uh, in 1995, but I've seen other reports that say 1997 is when enzyme peak started. Okay. So it's one of those
0: two. So 1995, 1997, it's been a while, but regardless of which date it was, it's already 20 years after the 13 Fs was adopted in 1975 and made part of the law in Congress. That's right. Okay. So let's go to page four. What was the point of Section 13F? Okay, this is important. Section 13F addressed concerns regarding the impact of large institutional funds on, by the way, you may have already mentioned some of this, Spencer, earlier, but on three things, market stability, fairness to the investing public, and interests of the companies who issue stocks and bonds. So I think you said that in a bit more accessible language earlier. Did you want to say anything else about why no, section 13F ju- was
1: passed? No, this is great. And it's uh it's in our best interest for us to know certain things, right? This isn't something where it's just government imposing something. This is in our public in the public's best interest to yes. have this transparent information.
0: Okay, then it goes on to say without regular information disclosures from large market participants Excuse me, let me go back and try that again. Without regular information disclosures. So we're talking about information disclosures is one thing. Okay, without regular information disclosures from large market participants, the market is less fair and less orderly. And then there's a quote from the 1978 Securities and Exchange Commission from their filing and reporting requirements relating to institutional investment managers. So here's the thing. There are times when I'm doing my taxes, or I should say when I used to do my taxes for myself before having someone else do them for me. I would do taxes and they always came with instructions. And the instructions have to do with every line on the taxes so that I would know what it was I'm supposed to be doing. And it sounds like from this, that this 13F filings for Security and Exchange Commission purposes is no different that they also give instructions with it That's and correct. these are the instructions from july 31st 1978
1: yeah and just to give context i can there's an there's a frequently asked questions phase uh, page that the sec provides on 13f filings and it's only you know it's like 50 questions long and with those questions you can you're you're if you're just a regular old accountant you can you can fill out a 13f just fine so they they provide really well, good instructions surrounding. Right. How to it's do it.
0: not hard. There's instructions to be found. It's been around and everybody knows how to do it. Who's in this field. This is ma- the main points that we're trying to get to,
1: right? Right. Here, and not here's... only that, but you can look up everybody else's 13F and you can kind of just copy them because they're all doing it the same way. Oh, my so. gosh.
0: So you're saying even I could do it?
1: Yeah, you could. I mean, we can all look up all the 13Fs. And so you look at like five of them, there's not going to be a lot of variation, you can kind of figure it out from that, like at mm-hmm. least in terms of formatting and all of that, you've got it all figured out. So here's this one quote
0: from these instructions from 1978 or filing and reporting requirements. Here's the quote. First, the reporting system is designed to improve the body of factual data available and thus facilitate consideration of the influence and impact of institutional investment managers on the securities markets and the public policy implications of that influence. So there's the quote that basically says why it is that this is important to do and to do it quarterly and to do it honestly and correctly. Any thoughts about that before we go to page five?
1: no i mean like the sec's entire purpose is this if i if i if a company tells me that they have this much in such amount in earnings let's say let's say that their net income is x dollars how do i know to trust that information well what the current system has provided is they may is if you're registered with the sec you have to get an independent audit you have to uh you have to um the sec will kind of Go after you if you, you know, there's some litigation system involved, where the SEC will go after you if you lie about it, and so by creating some sort of enforcement uh, entity, trust is enhanced. And so what I was talking about was a disclosure from companies, but also the disclosure of these really large investors is important too. If if Bernie Madoff tells everyone, which he did, he actually filed all of his 13Fs, um. Bernie Madoff tells everyone I have this much and, and, and he's lying about it. It's really important that we be able to trust what is in those 13 F's and the sec's job is to try and enforce and make sure that everybody's doing it the right way.
0: Well, it makes sense. And by the way, if the listeners are to the point where this is sounding so obvious now and quit beating a dead horse, I hope that's the point that the listener is at because this is so obvious, so easy so regular for investment companies to do this, that it highlights how strange it is that the LDS Church did not do that with its own investment company. Right. So if we go to page five, what is a Form 13-F and a preview of Enzyme Peak's misstatements? So now we're gonna start getting into the nuts and bolts of everything that was misstated in all of these 13F filings that were made by the church on behalf of its shell companies for approximately 20 years. So here we go, form 13F enables compliance with section 13F disclosure law. Yeah, I think we've got that. It requires information about the institution or firm. It requires information about the securities held It requires information about other managers or other firms that are involved in your firm. It requires information about investment discretion and shareholder voting authority. Now, those last two are a bit of a question mark to me. So what is investment discretion, Spencer? And why is the SEC concerned about knowing about it?
1: Yeah, it just means like who is the person that's involved in making the decision about where to invest and the reason that they care about it is that if you have two theoretical companies that are investing but they're working together they're in cahoots then from an investor perspective i want to think of them as basically one entity they could be uh, operating in conjunction with each other in terms of their strategy It could mean different different things in terms of like whether they're pushing a company in one direction. Like let's say that there are, I'm just providing a hypothetical. I don't think this exists. But let's say that there are 100 different companies, but they share investment discretion. The SEC says, you need to tell us about this because those 100 companies, let's say that they um, care a lot about uh, green energy. And they're going to push a company that they own all little bits in in one direction towards, uh, towards uh, ESG or, or, um, green, green initiatives. Okay. Well, that's important information for me as an investor to see. And so I need to think of that as one large block holder, one large shareholder rather than 100 small shareholders that really don't have a lot of say. And so if you have shared investment discretion, you have to report that that's what investment discretion is. Did I, did I explain that? well?
0: I think so. I think you did fine. And the main idea is if I've got my own investment company and I'm at the head of it, like Roger Clark was at the head of Enzyme Peak, then let's say basic structure. I've got 100% investment discretion in how it is that I invest the stocks that I'm investing in, right? I can buy this. I cannot buy that. Nobody else can tell me what to do. That's right. But but if there are other companies that do have investment discretion or somebody above me who has investment discretion, then I need to report that. I'm required by the law to report that on the 13F filings, right?
1: Correct. Yes.
0: Okay. So before we go to the next, actually, I'm going to say this. So we've got Enzyme Peak at the top of this, and then they slice up their investments into 13 groups. So it's like a pie. That's it. They sliced up into 13 pieces and they took each piece of investments and put them into 13 shell companies. And then they nominated or appointed a business manager over each of the 13 shell companies. And each of the 13 business managers then yeah, I think it was 12, but then there was one at the beginning that was made and then 12 that were cloned, right? right.
1: Yes. So, yeah. So, so it that's was why I say
0: 13, because I'm including total. the first one.
1: Yeah. At the very end, there were 12. So when you split it up, it was into 12 pieces. But yeah, you're right. In all the facts, it's okay.
0: It makes, well, like you're 12 good. tribes of Israel. That's right.
1: Maybe it was.
0: <laughs> so the basic thing is that if they were going to report honestly, all of these stocks are owned by EP. And EP has 100% discretion authority over how these stocks are invested because these are just shell companies. It's still 100% EP's investments, but they're engaged in this rather elaborate structuring system in order to hide how much they have.
1: That's correct. So they could have done one of two things here. They could have created 12, 13 Fs for the 12 uh let's say that there were 12 at that time uh shell companies and then they could have either listed on the 13f they could have listed all the other managers of all the other shell companies and said we're basically all together or they could have just reported as ensign peak um i think either way would have been fine because you would have been able to then uh infer what the umbrella company was
0: Right. And in fact, on the 13 Fs, if they had done it that way and filed for each of the 12 shell companies and said, actually, I have zero investment authority, I have zero discretion. And Enzyme Peak, Roger Clark, up at the top of the totem pole, he's got 100% of the investment discretion, assuming that he did. Then that would have been fine because they would have been been transparent about it. They would have been honest and everything would have been okay, and the church would not be $5 million poorer today. Yes. Okay. But instead, they didn't do that. So that's one thing is about the investment discretion. And the next thing that is important has to do with shareholder voting authority. So the 13F requires not only information about any other managers that have investment discretion, but also about who has the shareholding, the shareholders' voting authority. Can you explain that to the audience?
1: Yeah, when you're a shareholder, when you own an investment in a co- company as a as a shareholder, you're a part owner, and so sometimes there are votes, there are uh, uh, votes that occur uh, for each uh, company in certain actions, like should we approve the CEO of this company to have this salary, or Um, There could be lots of different initiatives. We're going to, should we approve to have a a stock split or something like that? So anyway, there are lots of different times that maybe as a shareholder, as a part owner, you would get to vote on things. And so if you have shareholder voting authority, that should be listed. Um, In this case, Enzyme Peak held shareholder voting authority. The shell companies did not. And uh, that that was misreported on the 13Fs. Okay.
0: So we're going to really get into this investment discretion and shareholder voting authority, because this becomes really the locus, I think, of the items and the information that the church was hiding from the SEC. To be completely clear, the church did not hide how many investments it had or their value. So what I'm saying is through these 12 shell companies, they encompass the entirety of Enzyme Peak's investment holdings. Correct. That's correct. So yeah. to that extent, they're not misreporting how much Enzyme Peak has. They're misreporting who has it.
1: Yes, is that's it ex- that's a, or is it? That's a 12- great
0: way of summarizing it. Thank you. Right. Or these twelve different companies, these shell companies, and then they have to, unfortunately, and you can almost see it developing, right? Their goal is to hide how much money they have. And therefore, they've created these 13 shell companies in order to distribute it out and make it look like, well, we don't really have anything. There's just these 12 n- named companies that are named in a way that they have nothing to do, or no reasonable person would think they have anything to do with the church. They put business managers over each one who are actually employees at Ensign Peak. And excuse me, Insign Peak. <laughs> And like my dad. Yeah. Yeah. And they these are just employees that they have. So it's all this this huge scam that they're running just because they don't want the public to know how much money the church has. So once they create these different shell companies, that's step one. But now each shell company is required to file a 13F report. So now they're going to monkey with the 13F reports to continue with their goal of hiding how much money the church has. Because if they're honest in their 13F reports, then everybody will know that all this money and all these investments are held by Enzyme Peak, which is the church's investment arm. And that's the one thing that they don't want anybody to know.
1: And it's the one thing that 13Fs are for. So you can't get around it.
0: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. So now they've got to start fudging, which is a nice word for lying, on these reports as to... These two critical things. Who has investment discretion? Well, each of these 13F reports that got filed by the business managers of the shell companies say that it's the business manager who has 100% discretion and nobody else has any discretion on how this shell company's stocks are invested when that is a lie. The business manager has no discretion. All that discretion is held by Enzyme Peak correct is that the first thing
1: yeah they could have either said we share discretion because they were part of enzyme peak or they should have said no discretion yeah either one of those would have been fine
0: either one of those would have been fine but instead they they went for option three
1: they said we have sole discretion like we're operating independently that's right right and shareholder
0: voting authority as well because this is set up in such a way that it's different from your regular company that sells stocks and if you buy stock then you start having Voting rights in the company, and the more stock you hold, the more voting rights you have. Is that a fair way of summarizing it?
1: Yeah, absolutely. You could get to the point where you significantly influence uh, another company's uh, operations and by fifty-one so
0: percent of the stock,
1: right? Yep, exactly. Or even less. You know, if you have enough votes, you can still influence the vote. So,
0: but here, this is a different kind of cat because. There are no shareholders. There's lots of stocks that the church has accumulated and bought with tithing money. But there are no shareholders. There are no people who have a vote in how the church runs its investment arm. And so what should it, let me go on to this next part. It'll probably be answered here. We're still on page five toward the bottom. Form 13F has three sections. There's a cover page, there's a summary page, and there's an information table. All right, so it's pretty simple. Cover page, summary page, information table. And in the cover page, I'm going to go through this really quickly, but there are certain things that the church did fine and certain things where the church did not do fine and actually lied to the federal government. So on the cover page, you're supposed to do the reporting period, which would be whatever quarter it is you're reporting for, the firm name and address, the file number, the report type. There's also an attestation of true, correct, and complete information. So this is like if I'm thinking about my tax filings. At the bottom, when you sign your name, there's always the the language above it saying that this information is true and correct to the best of your belief and knowledge. So there's an attestation that it's true with the 13F filings, just like there is with an IRS tax filing. Is that correct?
1: Yeah, that's right. The punishment's a little heavier for this one, though. But yeah. What's the punishment for this? Well, you know, if we go down to the bottom of the slide, it mentions that there's a warning here that says intentional misstatements, intentional being a pretty important part of that. Intentional misstatements mis- mis- or omissions of facts constitute federal criminal violations. If you you know if you're doing your own income tax returns, you're not you know you might pay uh, you probably just owe back taxes. Um, yeah, and some penalties. Yeah, and some. Penalties. But it's but
0: it's not it's not a million dollars. At least not for me. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Right. So it's a federal crime. It's probably a federal crime if you do it intentionally on your tax forms too. But yeah, there's a warning on the SEC sample form 13F. By the way, the sample form, this is something that you find on the internet and you can look and see how to do
1: it. Yeah, there's a template for you. I mean, it's just, we've hit this over and over again, but it's really, really easy to do the 13F. Okay,
0: good. So yeah, there's, a, there's the language. Attention. All caps, intentional misstatements or omissions of facts constitute federal criminal violations, all bold faced, federal criminal violations. Then they got the statute that you're going to be violating if you do that, which is what the church did again and again and again. So still on the cover page, you got to put the name of the person signing this report and the signature of that person with the place and date of signing. Now, place and date of signing is in red because that was a violation. They did that intentionally and over and over again with every 13F filing that was done for each of these shell companies, the place and date of signing were intentionally
1: misstated. Is that correct? That's correct. They did not fly the managers to Delaware or anything. They they signed in Utah. Right. They're creating all
0: these, these 12 companies and they're putting them across the country in terms of their address which is a shell company, because there's a mailbox, but probably not a lot more. And there's a phone, right? That's right. There's a phone number. So all these business managers, they're not in these other states. They're not at these locations. They're still in Salt Lake City at the Ensign Peak Advisors Building. They're just pretending to be business managers Who are out here over these pretend companies, these shell companies. And they're signing each of these 13 F's, which says, sign the date and place of your signing. And that's something that's required under the law, by the way. I don't know if everybody in the audience knows that. But in order to make something legally binding, you have to say, you know, uh, I swear under penalty of perjury under the laws of whatever state that the foregoing is true and correct, signed this day and this place. You have to have the date and the place, which usually can just be as general as the city in which it's being signed. But those are required to be on the form before the signature then is legally binding. So that's why the place is so important. If the place is not there, then it's not legally binding. But here they're putting a place down. It's just not the place where it's actually being signed. So there's that one. Now, the summary page. After the cover page, we get to the summary page. There's um, a number of line entries on the information table. Total market value of all securities listed. By the way, and here I'm thinking about where it says number of line entries on the information table. I'm once again liking it to filing tax returns. Where you have your main form, your 1040. And you may have supplemental forms, especially if you have a business and certain expenses where you're going to pay. Uh, deduct and itemize your expenses where you're going to have a different form for that right and it'll be attached to the main form but you itemize your expenses on this other form and then you come down to the bottom line with the total of itemized expenses you take that total now and you plug it into the main 1040 form in the place where it talks about itemized expenses is that what it's talking about here on the summary page where it says number of line entries on the information table
1: it's basically saying on the next page, you're going to see this information table that lists all of the companies we've invested in. How many companies have you invested in? That's what the number of line entries is. So it's basically just saying how many how many different companies are you going to have in your information table? And what's the total market value of those companies that you're going to give us?
0: Which, so you, that, which you would think they would know since that's the whole point of investing
1: is to... All you got to do is count them up. It's not yeah. a... Yeah. Yeah. So it's and they did that hard, than right. I was thinking. Yes, it is. It's not even. There are no. There are no additional schedules to 13F. It's just these three things. Yeah.
0: Okay. Now on the summary page, now we get into some trouble with the church, or the church gets into some trouble with the SEC. You're also supposed to list other firms, any other firms or managers with shared investment discretion. That's why we took the time to define what that meant a few minutes ago. You have to list any other firms or managers with shared investment discretion. They did not do that on any of these 13F sections that they filed up until, what was it? 2000, I think it was, or excuse me, 2020.
1: Right. Up until 2020.
0: Right. And I think it'll get to this, but the mind-blowing thing is that they didn't list any other managers, which absolutely existed on this 13F form until they were caught, until the whistleblower blew it, (laughs) blew the whistle on them, right?
1: Mm -hmm, That's right. But
0: even after they continued to do it for a couple of times,
1: they did. (laughs) That's (laughs) the amazing
0: part. They continued to do it even after the whistleblower said that they had $32 billion in the stock market under these 12 different shell companies
1: yeah, I don't know if they were like digging their heels in trying to negotiate with the SEC, trying to argue, you know, if they start to change right away, then it means that they've admitted that they've done it wrong. Maybe they thought that they could negotiate with the SEC that they thought what they were doing was on the up and up or, um, I I don't know why they did that, but I would love to be a fly on the wall because it was, it's quite clear that they were doing it wrong all along.
0: So also on the summary page, in addition to listing the other firms with shared investment discretion which they did not do you're also supposed to put down the number of other managers with shared discretion and they did not do that either they all claimed in all the 13f forms that there was only the one business manager who was not even a business manager because it's not even really a business it's a shell company and so there are these managers who have no discretion at all, so they any discretion they have would be shared discretion. Now, these business managers over each shell company may certainly have been people who worked at Enzyme Peak. In fact, I think they definitely were people who worked at Enzyme Peak and may have been investing in certain stocks. So perhaps they did have some investment discretion, but under no circumstances, even the most charitable. Did they have one hundred percent sole investment discretion? Because they're being told what to do Correct. by their boss. So reporting right. that they had that there were no other managers with shared discretion on each of these thirteen F's was not true. Correct. All right. Then you get to the information table for each security covered by SEC thirteen F. So if I've got an investment firm and I've got a hundred stocks that I'm invested
1: in. And mm-hmm. I
0: have to do.
1: For each company, I would list out that I, each company that I'm invested in, let's say it's Apple, I would list the issuer name, the security class. These are just kind of details about the type of investment you're holding QSIP or Fiji code. This is just uh, an identifier for the um, industry or for the, the company itself. Um, market value, shares owned of the company at that certain date. So the number of shares owned at a date, uh, market value at that date, um, at the date of the report. And then who holds discretion over that investment? um, If it's sole, if it's shared or none, other managers uh, that might be involved and voting authority.
0: All right, now I know this gets a bit duplicative because on the summary page, we have the same thing about discretion. But in the information table, now we also have discretion on each of the different stocks or securities held. Correct. But we also have the requirement of information about who has voting authority. Can you tell us a little bit about that? You've already defined it, but what does that look like on the table?
1: Um, It just says, yes, we have voting authority or don't. Like, do we have voting, uh, uh, shareholder voting authority over this company? So if I own, uh, let's say that I own money in Apple, um, I might. forego my voting authority and just just be a passive investor Mm -hmm. and that would be an indicator to say there would be an indicator on the information table to say that I don't have voting authority over Apple or the type of shares that I own don't give me voting authority or something like that Um, oh okay so
0: I understand on that summary page they've already given incorrect information where they say that the business manager has sole investment discretion over each of the shell companies that's not true correct They also repeat that for each of the securities on the information table, but then the voting authority, why is the voting authority important and how is it misstated on these forms?
1: So voting authority is important because in my view as an investor, if you, if somebody else that has especially strong views has voting authority over a company and a lot of shares in that company, then they can influence that company in a way that maybe I don't want. And maybe I don't want to invest in that company anymore. So if the church owns a lot of, I mean, think about the church and the, you know, its moral stance on certain things, it could actually influence the operations of some of these companies. And what it's saying here in the information table is that the voting authority is held within a small shell company that has nothing to do with the church. So as the public, as a public investment base, if we were to look at the 13 Fs that the church filed under these 12 shell companies, we would have no idea. That the church has not only voting authority, uh, you know, that exists. Not only that it's the church's voting authority, but also that the voting authority that they do have is much larger than we would think, because there are actually twelve of these um, shares, shell companies that are under the church. So it, almost that the, there's twelve times the voting authority what we would of uh, what we would or voting power. That the church has over these companies that we would normally than what we would think based on their disclosures
0: so if i'm understanding you correctly then for each of these 13f filings in the places where they're required to say whether they have voting authority or how much each of the business managers said they have
1: absolute voting authority that they have voting authority yes that the shell company has voting authority that the manager over each shell company has voting authority which is not true It was all held by EP, right? Yeah. And that's where that's where the mistake was. Yes. Okay. And that's
0: a nice word to use mistake. I think that was where the another example of fraud occurred.
1: (laughs) That's good. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. So we get to the the mistake was made purposely.
0: Yeah. I'm sorry. I talked over you. What? No, go ahead. Oh, Okay yeah, we we're just having this discussion the other day about my former missionary companion, Kyle McKay, who's now the church historian, talking about mistakes of church leaders and how that shouldn't be a cause to doubt. And um, of course, my response is no, the mistakes they the mistakes they do doesn't bother me. It's their intentional actions that I have a problem with. That's and this right. was not a mistake. These were intentional acts every step of the way, which is one of the reasons that we went over how basic this is in reporting, how longstanding this rule has been and how easy it is to do and how much information the SEC gives, including
1: templates and instructions on how to do it. Yeah. And to that point, so I have a friend that's actually works at the SEC. And one of the things that, she'll, that she would mention to you if she were here is that The SEC cares about intentionality. They care, you know, if the church was just accidentally doing something wrong, then the SEC would want to correct it. So they do it right. Um, But when somebody is intentionally obfuscating, intentionally being misleading or deceptive, then the SEC takes it as a responsibility on their behalf that they have to be punished, that they have to be shamed. And the way that the SEC acted in the church in this instance um, strongly suggests, you know, shows that the SEC saw that there was intentionality behind this. Mm-hmm. If this was just a mistake and just a misform, misfiled form, there are, are ways to get around it. There are, you know, it's sort of like getting a warning. and yes. the church the SEC isn't going to just impose fines on everybody for every uh, every ignorant mistake that we make. So.
0: Right. And and I've certainly been on the receiving end of the IRS in similar situations too, so I know what you're talking about. And by that, I mean goofing it up, which is why I have somebody else do it for me now and have for several years. But we get to page six, right? Enzyme Peak. Oh, hey, here's the title. Spencer, title of page six.
1: Oh, Enzyme
0: Peak used 13 LLCs to file forms 13F from 2003 to 2019. What do you think about that? 13 LLCs.
1: <laughs> As an accountant, it means that I was wrong, but not materially <laughs> wrong. But at any given point in time, the most they ever had was 12. So, oh, I guess okay. It's at important. any given
0: point in time, I see. I see. Okay. Because the first one they created, they had to redo because it was like too obvious, I think.
1: Yes. They got rid of it after 2005 or something. Yeah.
0: Got it. By the way, Spencer, I don't know if I've ever told you this joke. What's the difference between a lawyer and an accountant?
1: Um, I do not know the joke. I don't know. Accountants. know they're not funny. (laughs) Yeah, that's pretty good. I like it.
0: Okay. (laughs) So that's the comedy break back to (laughs) the widow's might. So this is page six that I've read the title shell companies, or LLCs. By the way, that's a limited liability company. Okay. In other words, that's the designation that it's filed under with the secretary of state and whatever state it is that you're creating the company. Shell companies were used to file forms 13F so the church could avoid disclosing its assets. That's key. And the other thing I I was going to say, it just clued me in, is that this is obviously not a mistake this is an elaborate and labyrinthine process that was engaged in for 20 years by people who knew better with one goal in mind. And that was to keep the public from knowing how much money the church had. Every single piece to this is designed with that goal in mind. And they were successful for two decades. So obviously not a mistake. This was no boating accident. The next sign The next line is EP controlled every investment held in each of the LLCs. I think we've covered that. Enzyme Peak controls every estimate, every investment held in each of these shell companies. So this is a chart then below on page six, which shows the growth of the investments held by Enzyme Peak since 2002 and up to 2022. By the way, when the whistleblower made his report back in 2008, it was approximately 32 billion. Since that time, it has grown to almost 50 billion. And once again, I've got to say to avoid confusion, because I got confused by this in the first place, we're not talking about everything that's held by Enzyme Peak. They've got a ton of investments in real estate, in businesses, and all sorts of things that are not reflected in the U.S. stock market. That's right. What we're talking about here is simply the investments that Enzyme Peak had in the U.S. stock market. And that's what grew from $32 billion in 2018 to almost $50 billion Today, this chart also gives us the names of the different shell companies that the church came up with. Once again, the idea behind naming the shell companies is to make it something so generic and so non-Mormon specific that nobody looking at it would think, hey, these are the Mormons. And as I recall, that was the problem with the first shell company that was created was that not only did it maybe sound a little bit Mormonish, but the person who was named as the business manager had a high social media profile and was kind of well-known for being a Mormon. And that's why they scrapped that one, because it was too easy to figure out. Do I remember that's that
1: right. correctly? Yeah, that's right.
0: Hey, can you read the names of these? I just uh, love these names because they're so bland and so forgettable. But these are the names of the 13 total shell yeah, and companies. Just,
1: and just to let you know, so some of these um, lesser known firms were were used, like they, what they did is they would take legitimate companies and just t- change like one letter in the name So that it even kind of gave off the appearance of legitimate companies that were out there that that filed 13Fs so that you would get confused and think, oh, well, it's just a misspelling or something like that. Um, So one of them is Argyle, A-R-G-Y-L-L, Ashmore, Cortland, without the U. I think there should be a U there, but C-O-R-T-L-A-N-D, Green Valley, Riverhead, Tiverton. I think that's like Riverton Riverton, but they went ahead and changed the letter there. Elk Fork, Flinton, instead of Clinton, maybe Uh, Glen Harbor, Meadow Creek, Newberg and tires T Y E R S. So just like completely made up names. I mean, Joseph Smith would have been and Whitney Joseph Smith would have been proud.
0: You know, I, I got handed to the LDS church. They are devious. Creative. They are crafty. They <laughs> they bring to this two hundred years of institutional knowledge of how to hide things.
1: I'd like to know if Newberg has any um, has any roots uh, closely related to Hebrew. I think it would be interesting to see.
0: Yeah, they're not putting Nauvoo down here as one of the names of their companies, are they? No. <laughs> or Nyberg,
1: right.
0: like Alexander yeah. Nyberg, right? From church Yeah, history? Is that
1: how it's pronounced? Nyberg? Is it Newberg or Nyberg? Yeah. Well, this would be Newberg. I think yeah. his is N E I. Yeah. None of these, like, clearly, except for Whitney, which was the one that was kind of call, uh, uh, shut down, mm-hmm. none of these really uh, say Mormon or Utah to me. Right.
0: So, success.
1: Yeah. Mission yeah. There's no way. There's no way that they could have figured this out. I mean, a- apart from them having submitted and electronically filing all of these from the same location. Yes. There there would have probably been, they'd still be doing this to this day.
0: You know, they they should have invested in some kind of technology or even just freaking plane tickets. Right. To send Send their business managers out to the actual location where they're supposed to be filing these from. Then at least they wouldn't be violating that part of the law where they sign it at the place in the city that were signed. That part would have been true. And then they would have actually been sending it in from that physical location. That would have been a great idea. They that should have, have been... thought of that. I'll bet they're <laughs> ruining the day. Yeah. There are a couple of things of that. that
1: they could have done. Just a couple of tweaks to actually make it a little bit better. Their uh their little scheme here, but
0: yeah, just hire some office assistant out in each of these cities to file them from there.
1: Yeah. Yeah. That would have worked. Make
0: sure that they're members in good standing and, uh, Sworn to secrecy.
1: Now they still would have gotten in trouble. But oh, yeah, that would have only taken care of
0: that one, one of thing the, and yeah. it would have made more difficult for them to be found out. That's right. That's the thing. Yeah. This doesn't make it legit. This just makes it harder to find out the illegitimacy. Right. Okay. Going to page seven, titled Guidance issued in 1978 Left No Wiggle Room for Enzyme Peak. Since Enzyme P controlled what stocks were in the shell companies. Now this is LLCs. And by the way, I'm gonna guess that members of the Widows Might Report are gonna be watching this. This isn't something I had caught before, but I think there's a shift between shell companies and LLCs, the use of that terminology in this report that might be potentially confusing. I would suggest they just pick one term Define it and stick with it. And I think they should just use shell companies throughout. Okay. Hope you're listening out there. So since EP controlled what stocks were in the LLCs, and I'll say those are the shell companies. It was required to report shared discretion. Right. Now, by the way, during this entire time, up until 2000, Enzyme Peak is not filing, as I understand it, any 13Fs on behalf of itself. Is that correct? Correct. Because obviously if it did, then you would have duplicate reports. You had have EP saying 13F reports. We have discretion over 100% of our stocks, but we've got these 12 shell companies who are reporting the same stocks.
1: Right. And, and doing so would have um, upended its entire purpose, right? So if they had decided to report as Ensign Peak, it would have directly violated their it it would have uh it would have gone against what their whole intent was right so
0: right so enzyme peak is sitting back here hidden in a sense from the federal government and the securities and exchange commission and having these 12 shell companies pretend that they actually own the stocks that are owned and operated and invested by enzyme peak that's right. Okay, I'm, I'm trying to come up with new ways of saying it because sometimes if I say things in a different way, it makes it easier for me to understand. Page seven goes on. Lawful reporting would have defeated their purpose. Oh, did you just say that? Did you read yeah, that on the next
1: paragraph? Yeah, I was jumping ahead, sorry. got it.
0: Lawful reporting <laughs> would have defeated their purpose. The shell companies added no value aside from violating disclosure laws. I'm going to read that again because these shell companies, they have no value to enzyme peak except for their avowed purpose of violating disclosure laws. So the public won't know how much money the church has. So this is from 1978. Again, this is from the Securities and Exchange Commission. Interpretive release relating to Rule 13F1 and related Form 13F. So here's where they make it clear beyond dispute in 1978 what the purpose of these forms is and why they're supposed to be filed correctly. You want to read this?
1: Yeah. So just a a reminder, you can either classify yourself as sole investment discretion, shared, or um, um, none. Okay. And it's very clear. It says, if the manager makes all decisions, then of course he has sole investment discretion. If he merely makes recommendations to internal managers of the account, which make their own decisions, then he does not have discretion at all. If the decision-making can best be described as joint decision-making, then investment discretion should be reported as shared. Uh, the fact that they even provided this type of advice that is like self-explanatory is uh, is uh, quite telling about like how easy this was, right? Like this is the type of guidance the SEC provided, which is simple. If it's shared, it's shared. If it's sole, it's sole. If it's none, it's none. That's basically what the SEC is saying.
0: Yeah, even I can understand that. Yeah. Okay, so that's from 1978, and now we go to page eight. The shell companies were located and staffed for the purpose of anonymity. Goes on, hiring of business managers, and that's in air quotes. Actually, I'm saying in air quotes. They're actual quotes on the document. Hiring of business managers for these shell companies prioritized secrecy over investment experience, by which I understand it to mean we don't care what investment experience you have. We're not putting you as a business manager over the shell company because of your experience because you're not going to be investing anything. You don't have any discretion here. This is- Yeah, just, you're not making any decisions, yeah. Yes, this is a shell business manager over a shell company. The LLCs or the or the shell companies were given various addresses. I think they went to LLCs probably because they wanted to make it a short term. In other words, LLCs, That's four letters instead of saying shell companies every time. And I know they're trying to compress information in this document. So the shell companies were given various addresses, physical addresses. The LLCs were given various addresses to further avoid being connected to enzyme peak. I think we talked about that, but they have a nice diagram here of the United States. So we can see where it is that they located the shell companies. At least they located them on paper to make the federal government think that these were actual companies and not just shell companies. And they've got one up there in Oregon. They got a couple down there. It looks in Southern California. They got one in the heart of Texas. They got one over there in Georgia. And then they've got probably a bunch of them in Delaware, because I understand it's very common for businesses to incorporate in Delaware, regardless of whether, whether they exist in Delaware or where their physical location is. And then there might be something else close to Delaware. And I'm not sure because I'm not as familiar with the East Coast as
1: I am with the West. Do you know about that one? I don't remember which one that one was, but there is one place where it's not. None of these are listed. It's conspicuously like there's nothing around Utah or its surrounding <laughs> states. Oh my gosh, you're right. Well, it's there's it's just about everywhere but that.
0: So you've got some on the East Coast, a bunch of them on the East Coast. you got Georgia, Texas, a couple in Southern California, one in Oregon. And the one in Oregon, which is probably Portland, and then you got two in Southern California around LA, those are as close as you get to Utah for any of their shell company physical addresses. There's nothing in Utah, nothing in Idaho. There's nothing there's nothing along the Rocky Mountains from Idaho, Utah, Colorado, Arizona which are all famous for having Mormons in them because of the expansion and the settlement under Brigham Young. But yeah. no, you're right. There's nothing within miles and miles and hundreds of miles of Salt Lake City. They didn't even put one in Utah.
1: Yeah. They're almost too obvious. Spreading it's spreading out to like, so that you can't tell one L- one shell company from the other too. It's not just that they were trying to avoid Utah. They're also trying to stay apart from each other, which you know, makes sense. Wow. So a total of once back, once again, back to
0: the document, a total of 20 managers over time, I believe a total of 20 managers signed the 13 F forms for the shell companies and all 20 of the managers, of course, they've got 12 companies, right? But over time, over the 20 years, there were a total of 20 managers who signed off on these 13F forms, because obviously they'd have to replace managers from time to time. But every one of the total of 20 business managers over each of these shell companies lived and worked in Utah. I think that's powerful. What do you think about that?
1: I think that's really powerful. I feel really bad for these business manager people who it sounds like they were not the top experienced uh, investment professionals in the firm. So that means that there's a power dynamic here. And they're mm-hmm. telling you, you need to sign this document. Maybe they aren't as familiar with what a 13F is. And then to find out later, once this SEC order comes out, that they were selected because they had common names and a limited presence on social media. Like almost like, almost uh, salt in the wound. To find out that they were asking you to commit perjury, uh, to lie under threat of of uh, criminal penalty, which you and gladly then, did apparently, and and they went ahead and did it, and then to find out that the only reason you were selected was because you're a boring person, and that's, that's just got to be, salt in the wound. It's got to be p- kind of tough to to accept.
0: Right. This, so this, I feel, this became I feel the bad. criteria. It was. It wasn't. Uh, your business acumen in investments because you're not going to be investing anything for this company. You're just a figurehead. You're just here to sign the forms and we want to make it so that you don't have a social presence on uh, our presence on social media because we don't want to make the mistake that we made with the first company and make it easy to figure out that this is a Mormon who's in charge of this shell company. Right. Talk about adding insult to injury. That's right. I've got to ask you, Spencer, put yourself in the position if you're working at Enzyme Peak during this time period and somebody comes to you and say, we want to make you the business manager of this company and we need you to sign and file these forms on a quarterly basis. There is none of these people who did not know that they were lying on these forms. Is that a fair conclusion? I know it sounds very, very blanket. It sounds very dramatic, but I cannot envision any way that these business managers who were signing and filing these forms, or actually I should say signing the forms because it was Enzyme Peak who was filing them,
1: right? Yeah, it was Enzyme Peak that went ahead and electronically filed them and used their names. And then on the actual forms, like the physical forms, they would have them sign uh, physically. So let me go back
0: to my question.
1: Yeah, when they're asked, when it's like on the table in front of them and they're asked to sign it, did they know what they were doing did they know that they were doing something wrong
0: they had to didn't they
1: i i think that they i think that they probably um trusted their leadership and the authority a- ahead of them mostly because they were they assumed that the church was going to be on the up and up and figured that they were just doing something that was uh how do I, call, what do I, how would I describe this? That it, it's not as though like they were lying. It was as though that they were. Yeah. That come there was up some, with the that there was some like regulatory that. red tape that they had to get through. So could you just sign this for us? It's almost like, you know, do you mind if I, like if, if I use my wife's credit card and I go ahead and sign my wife's name on it. Mm-hmm. It seems like it doesn't feel like I've done something morally reprehensible as long as she knows that that's what I'm doing. Um, It's I wonder if that was the way it was framed to them. A lot of these people, I mean, imagine that you're just a a very recent BYU grad Mm -hmm. and you weren't taught about 13F filings because they're just commonplace things that you'll learn in the field Mm -hmm. Um, if you're just barely graduated from BYU in finance or something and you get called into Enzyme Peak and they're asking you to do these things and fill out these forms. I could see myself completely blindly following the, as a, as a business manager. Um,
0: Okay. Well, maybe it's the attorney in me that always insists on reading something before I sign it.
1: Yeah. It's telling though that a couple of the business managers quit once they found out, once the leak happened, which Mm -hmm. suggests that they weren't fully aware of what they were doing until mm. that leak occurred. Okay. And so I wonder if, you know, what if they had them sign it and then afterwards the enzyme peak people put in the, the address. And so they were just saying, "Will you sign this document. It just says, you know, whatever. It doesn't say, you don't, you don't even know what you're signing. You're just saying, okay, well, I'll sign this. This is for some regulatory form. Okay. Blah, blah, blah. I'm done. Okay. I, I don't know. I'm just trying to give the benefit of the doubt.
0: I think you're very charitable, and you may be
1: right. But the, the, either way, the the conclusion is: don't trust your authority figures yeah. just because they're you work for the church, or just because they're part of the church. It's it's a uh, it's obvious that that should should not have happened. That they should have questioned it. Yeah, yeah.
0: So should have definitely did know. I'm still going to lead toward ninety nine percent on that one. While recognizing your 1% of charity on the table that maybe they didn't. Yeah. Okay. So let's go to the next page, page nine. Oh, these are the IMA documents. Now, IMA stands for Investment Management Agreement Documents. So Enzyme Peak now, as it's creating, I mean, there are circles within circles of this conspiracy to defraud The federal government, and by defraud, I mean filing false and knowingly false documents with the federal government to hide how much money Enzyme Peak has. I'll define my own terms, okay? But Enzyme Peak also creates investment management agreements for each of its business managers over each of its shell companies. So they've got a contract with them that Enzyme Peak holds. So each shell company had an investment management agreement that claimed to give investment discretion to the shell company business manager with Enzyme Peak becoming the client. So let me back up here and say, this is not what was going on. This investment management agreement between Enzyme Peak and their business managers of the shell companies is also fake in that Insane Peak is not giving any investment discretion to the shell companies. They're retaining it, but they're entering into these investment management agreements with the business managers of the shell company, purportedly giving the business managers that investment authority. Do I have that right?
1: That's right. There was no real authority being granted, but it's almost as though they knew that they had to create a paper trail that said we are giving up sole in- investment authority and voting authority to these shell companies mm-hmm. and so then they would have the contracts ready to go to hand to the sec if needed and say yes no enzyme peak is just the customer and we have these 12 companies that we're using to for for to to make investment decisions for enzyme peak ah okay obviously that's never been that was never actually the case when the sec engaged in its investigation it found out you know you dig a little bit deeper and you find out that that's not the case i'm sure that the i'm sure the enzyme peak willfully and 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 eagerly brought these contracts out to the sec and said no 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 we're on the up and up and right thankfully the sec dug a little deeper than that
0: the next line says that enzyme peak leaders signed the Investment management agreements, both as Enzyme Peak and also as the shell company. What does that mean?
1: It's just funny because it's like it's they do they. Uh, because they signed both sides of the contract they're they are sort of giving away the game that like, really, it's all the same thing. Right. You're not you don't have two entities. You have one entity and you're pretending to be two entities and that's why you created a contract where you're both signing both sides of it uh, you have employees from enzyme peak signing the llc part and you have an employee for enzyme peak signing the enzyme peak part and so th- really there is no actual uh independence here
0: let me ask you for this specific
1: were these
0: Investment management agreements, I always pause there because I don't want to just say IMA because I get confused with all the acronyms. Were these investment management agreements signed by the business managers as well?
1: Um, it's. It seems as though that's the case. It's not clarified as far as I know in the SEC cease and desist order. It would make it just, sense. It would make sense.
0: Because that's who you'd have to have it signed to make it look legitimate.
1: But remember that these are... Uh, Employees for Enzyme Peak. Oh, absolutely. So they can This is where I'm
0: driving to my point. I'm going to come back around to it again. If you're a business manager and you have signed off on an investment management agreement with Mm. Enzyme Peak that says that you get full authority to invest these stocks, but you know you don't have the investment authority to invest these stocks. And yet you're filing your 13 Fs on a quarterly basis, saying that you have absolute investment authority.
1: (laughs) Yeah, you're saying that they didn't know what they
0: were doing. I'm saying, yeah, they knew what they were doing. That's exactly what I'm coming around to again.
1: That's fair. That's the lawyer in you. You're really building that. That's a good argument.
0: Yeah, these guys were in on it. They were totally in on it. They knew what they were doing and they did it for God and the church.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'm still going to give them the benefit of the doubt just because I'm very... Uh, I I tend to think that the system that Mormonism creates allows us to turn off our brain in these types of scenarios. Mm-hmm. But um, it's possible. It's, you know, like there could have still been something that happened, right? There could have been a little bit of a 13 witnesses types of situation going on where in the contract, you've got two signatures and one person signed for both people or something like that, right? Um, but I, I don't know. I, okay. I'd, I'd like to give them the benefit of the doubt. Now, the person I'm not going to give benefit of the doubt to is Roger Clark. Oh, yeah. He's going to be on the hot or- seat. Orchestrated for the entire thing. Yeah, he's totally on the
0: hot seat. The buck stops with him. As far as I'm concerned, it doesn't absolve the first presidency because he was getting his marching orders from them, but he abandoned his ethics and did things that he knew were wrong in order to do what he was told to do. By the profits. Yeah. Okay. So we're still on page nine. We'll get to that. Enzyme Peak leaders signed, oh, yeah, these uh, investment management agreements, both as Enzyme Peak and also as the Shell company. We covered that. The named business managers did not make investment decisions, nor were they given shareholder voting authority. So these agreements are completely fictional. Since the Shell companies were not independent, because they're all owned by EP. Enzyme Peak was still legally required to file forms 13F in its own name. And I understand that to mean none of these shell companies are independent of Enzyme Peak, which means Enzyme Peak has at least some, if not all, investment authority over how these stocks are being invested, right? That's right. And therefore, Enzyme Peak is required under the law to file these quarterly 13 Fs in its own name. That's right. Is that right?
1: Yep, that's right.
0: All right. I'm going to go to the next page, if that's okay. You ready?
1: Great. Yeah.
0: Page 10, titled LLC Business Managers. So these are the shell companies. The business managers of the shell companies were mere figureheads. See, this is where you're getting to the part where obviously I had input because we're repeating things over and over to where even a dunce like I am can understand it. The business managers of each shell company often didn't know what stocks were in their shell companies or even why the shell companies were created. Do you want to comment on that?
1: Yeah, we talked about how there are three parts to the 13F. Mm Mm-hmm. They were often just given the cover page, which doesn't tell you anything except for, you know, just a few, the cover page information, which is just, this is the location, this is the name of the firm, here is the business manager, signed, dated, location. And so they didn't even have at their at their disposal the ability to look up what LLCs were in, under their presumed management authority. Which is... Okay. I, mean, I think that just goes to show that they were they had they were completely in the dark. They were how do you even be a manager if you don't even know what the what the companies are that are invested in in your company?
0: Right. That's sort of a point in your favor about maybe they didn't know. But on the other hand, you just said, how can you be the business manager if you don't even know what stocks are there? Yeah. All right. Yeah. So the second point on this page, 10. stocks were allocated among the shell companies by Enzyme Peak professionals who divided up holdings out of a centrally managed portfolio. I think that goes back to the idea that this is a a piece of a pie, all of the pies owned by Enzyme Peak. They divided it up into 12 slices and apportioned those out to the different shell companies. And we talked about that before. Yes, that's right. The 13F forms going on, the 13F forms were signed and filed electronically by Enzyme Peak. Generally, before the business manager was given a page to sign. So a lot of times when they're doing this electronically, Enzyme Peak, who's the one who's actually filing all the 13 Fs, would file them before they even had the business manager sign the cover sheet. Is that correct? That's right. And I had asked the widow's might uh, person what the significance of this was. And I said, is the significance that Enzyme Peak was running this show from beginning to end, from start to finish? And they said, yeah, that's exactly what it is. Yeah, that's right. Because if you've got a business manager who's filing legitimate 13 Fs for a legitimate company,
1: they're not going to file it until they've signed it. Right. They should have the final say. <laughs> right. It's their report. It's their filing. And instead, somebody was filing on their behalf and, and without their signature, without their know-how, without their approval, it it goes to show that they were just uh, all they needed was a warm body to sign yes. somebody that could presumably pass off as as a an investment manager. So they were likely in the finance department in Ensign Peak, but they but they weren't doing anything. Interesting. The
0: next paragraph, signed forms. Attested, so these are the 13 F forms. The signed forms attested to being signed at the shell company's designated headquarters outside Utah, but all were actually signed at Enzyme Peak headquarters in Utah. So we've talked about that. That's a knowing and intentional misstatement on each and every one of the 13 Fs that were filed. And then the final point is phone numbers. Oh, I like this. I want you to explain this. Phone numbers for the shell companies went to voicemail Okay, so once again, these shell companies, which are supposed to be around the United States, not in Utah, but in other places in the United States, they've got a phone number. They've got a post office box or someplace to send mail to. Right. And the phone numbers for each of the shell companies went to voicemail. Nobody picks up to answer when somebody calls thinking it's a real company right so nobody picks up they all go to voicemail and then the business managers of each of these shell companies were told that they had to delete all the voicemails that came into their shell companies except those from regulators
1: right could you yeah, explain that the fact that they that the business managers were in charge of this makes me think that maybe they were a little more involved so okay i'm you're convincing I'm me. you
0: over to guilty
1: yeah um I they're still dirty. feel bad that they, that they were chosen smiths. only they're, for being boring. They're all boring. dirty. <laughs> yeah. Uh, I'm sorry. Go uh, ahead. Explain. Oh, I still feel bad that they were chosen only for being boring. But um, but the yeah, like, I mean, just imagine any other scenario of any other company where the it's an empty business office in some location, think like Cayman Islands or something like that. And it goes straight to voicemail and some random person goes and picks up the mail And the only person that you answer the phone for is the SEC or the IRS. That's got to, I mean, it's immediately screams guilt, right? Um, You don't have to be well-versed in finance to like know that this is a shady operation going on. Do you have any, I don't know if there's anything else to add there, but.
0: No, but I would presume that calls coming in might have to do from. I don't know, potential investors.
1: Sure. Yeah. So, like, or you know, just somebody that's interested in neighbor uh company or the the landlord or you know, whoever. Um, but um <laughs> yeah. I, so it's all odd. these
0: things that would be normal phone calls coming in, as well as the solicitations that you have to deal with, but real phone calls coming into a legitimate company, they are told to delete them all. They never pick up, so there's never anybody answering the phone but everybody else gets deleted except for SEC regulators. And that's what the regulators means, right?
1: Yeah, that's right. Basically the SEC, because they know that that's the only reason the LSE, the, the shell companies exist. And they're the only calls that they care about is that if they've been caught. Oh my gosh.
0: Yes, we've got a call from a regulator, which they have to pass on now to EP, which I guess means walk out of their office and walk down the hallway. To another office, right? <laughs> and they pass it along so that in case um, I don't know the regulators want to meet with them or are getting wise that they can keep them in the dark. That's right. Amazing. Okay, so let's go to the next page, page eleven. And once again, there's about twenty pages in this. So we're halfway through. We'll probably pick up the pace a bit here.
1: I think a lot of this is yeah redundant, and we could probably move through this really fast. I bet. Yes,
0: like this one shell. Companies' portfolios held slices of Enzyme Peaks' portfolios. And there's a nice uh, image or graph trying to graph out how much it was that they owned of each of the different companies with the boring names that we already went over. But the heading at the top says the LLCs, the shell companies, did not operate independently. Their sole purpose was to report forms 13F while holding pieces of Enzyme Peaks' US equities and stocks. In their portfolio or equities are stocks. So we've gone over that. Let's just, uh, unless you want to say something about it, it goes over time from 2002 to 2018. I think it's a good graph for people who like graphs, but we can go on unless you want to say something else about this. No, pit.
1: it wasn't 12 equal slices, right? They were different slices. And it would have been hard for the SEC to find this without any internal people uh, or you know, some sort of sleuthing going on mm. like uh, Mormon Leaks was able to find out. Good point. Okay.
0: Now we get to page 12 where it says numerous misstatements on forms 13F filed by the shell companies. And on this page, what it really does is it goes over all the misstatements that were made on each of the 13Fs for each of the stocks that were presumably or at least claimed to be held by the shell companies. And then aggregates them to come up with an astoundingly large number of false statements made over the course of this project that Enzyme Peak and the church were involved in. So the cover page, let's see, there's three misstated summary items, and this is for each of the 13 F forms filed by the shell companies. So for every single one of the 13 F forms, which are filed quarterly for each of the shell companies, but for each one, there are three misstated summary items and five misstatements per security. Right. And that becomes significant. Three misstated summary items and five misstatements per security. So if they, if any shell company is claiming to hold 100 stocks or securities, then there's five misstatements per each stock or security, which would be 500 That's misstatements, right. right? Yeah. So this goes through all of the different uh places where misstatements were made we covered this before this gives a breakdown which is interesting in some regard i want to ask you do you want to talk about anything new that this page reveals that we haven't covered before
1: um no this is good yeah this looks great
0: yeah because there's something we're driving at and what i'm driving at is hopefully going to be Oh, this is how many misstatements were made on page 13, where they aggregate all of these different mistakes, or excuse me, they're not mistakes, they're misstatements, they're intentional misstatements, and they come up with the phenomenally large number of over 650,000 instances of untrue, incorrect, or incomplete information filed on these 13F forms over the course of this fraud.
1: Right? And it's signed, the 13F has an attestation that says all information herein is true, correct, and complete. And so there were over 650,000 of untrue, incorrect, or incomplete um, pieces of information. And that's a lot of misreporting. I mean, it's you'd have to try really hard to get your 13Fs wrong. So 650,000 instances is a, a huge number. By far, I mean... I can't think of any others that would, uh, you'd have to try hard to beat the church on this. It's, this is kind of going to be historical for the SEC, I think.
0: Yeah, the church has more money now than pretty much uh, any other company in the world. Not as much as all of them, I understand, but pretty much as much as the wealthiest companies in the world, but they also have more untrue statements to the SEC. Than any company, probably in the history of mankind. Okay. Yeah, so, I
1: don't know. That's a good that's a good claim, but I, I would have to look through. There are so many other forms, but definitely in the 13F
0: for sure. In the nobody 13F. defrauds the federal government like the LDS Church. <laughs> you know, there's sort of been this love-hate relationship between the federal government and the LDS Church for a long time. And maybe this yeah. is just another manifestation of it.
1: Yeah, that's right.
0: But the LDS Church fought the law and the law won. So going now to page 14, there's a, here's some conclusions that are important. Enzyme Peak Leadership. This is Roger Clark, okay? This report from the Widow's might doesn't mention names, but it's Roger Clark. Enzyme Peak Leadership, Roger Clark, knew the law and notified church leaders. This is critical. And the reason it's critical is because the church has now tried to play it like they got bad advice from their lawyers. What... The widows might report here now and from henceforth does in the rest of this report is show that that's a lie. That's right. The church not only lied to the federal government in order to conceal how much money it had. It's now lying to its members about what it did. That was wrong. So first paragraph, the head of enzyme peak from 1997 to 2020, 23 years. That's Roger Clark was at the same time, concurrently, chairman of another large investment firm, Analytical Investments, or excuse me, Analytic Investors, LLC, or AIL. Now, this is Roger Clark, and this is fascinating. This is one of the big moments from this report, which is that Roger Clark, who has a great deal of esteem, education, accomplishments, awards in this field of financial investing isn't just the head of Enzyme Peak Investments, he's also got his own private investment firm on the side that he is the head of, and that's called Analytic Investors, LLC. So the reason that's important is because of the next paragraph. At AIL, Roger Clark's private investment firm, what do you think happened with the 13 Fs there that they were required to file on a quarterly basis, Spencer?
1: Yeah, surprisingly, he didn't have as much trouble filing his 13 F filings uh, for his private firm. It, there was accurate disclosure. Widows might went through to kind of see if they made any mistakes. No, there was accurate disclosure. Shared discretion with other firms was listed, which is the main issue with um with the mis misreporting here was that there wasn't shared discretion reported. And at AIL, they did it properly. So Roger Clark knew what he was doing. He knew how to fill out these forms. He knew what these forms were asking for. Um and he just chose to lie and misreport under penalty, under, you know, against the law for enzyme peak.
0: This is what we call in my business, a smoking gun.
1: Yeah. Yeah, it really is. And I didn't realize this, but Roger Clark was, when I got my PhD, we sit in and in seminars and we read a lot of academic papers of, you know, seminal papers. And Roger Clark is on one of the seminal papers that I had to read in one of my seminars. He was an assistant professor at BYU at the time. And um, so for any accounting People out there, but Beaver, Clark, and Wright, 1979. That was one of, the you know, probably the top two or three papers um in the 1970s in accounting research mm. that was um that was published. And he was part of that. He's he's a he's a smart guy. He knows what he's doing. Um, this is not somebody who's like uh, you know, thrown into the finance industry and doesn't and is just kind of trying to wade through it. No, for he had already been in it for decades by the time this came around and so he really has no uh no excuse except for that he was willing to break the law because the prophet asked how can we do this this is and an that's, amazing that's a dangerous thing. it's a dangerous uh part about this whole uh i think it's a dangerous takeaway that we should have that we should take
0: i was talking with the widow's mite the other day and The widows might made this comment, which I thought I wanted to add here. If you take Roger Clark as the head of Enzyme Peak and you totally get away from the church, just put the church to the side, say the church has nothing to do with it. It's just a private investment firm, just like analytics was for Roger Clark. If Roger Clark is the head of Enzyme Peak and there's no church involved and no church influence, there's no way that Roger Clark doesn't file these 13 F's. In accordance with the law what do you think of that
1: absolutely there's no question in my mind no question and not only that he would have been fired (laughs) Um, i know he would have been fired it's just obvious right Um, right so
0: this page 14 now goes on just to gild the lily on this at roger clark's private investment firm analytics investors analytic investors All forms 13F were filed properly, including accurate disclosure of shared discretion with other firms. Now, this is because might actually went back and reviewed the 13F filings for analytic investors and found out by looking at them that they are filed correctly, including the shared discretion part, right? Thus, the conclusion is Enzyme Peak leadership, Roger Clark, had no confusion about the legal and compliance requirements regarding 13F disclosures. So, Spencer, I know that you've wanted to give a little charity to the business managers, the employees at Insign Peak. Are you able to extend that same charity to Roger Clark, the head
1: guy? Hell no, man. This guy, it, it drives me nuts. It makes me want to pull my hair out that this guy did this. Um, as accountants, we pride ourselves on this idea that like, we are Trustworthy, independent, um, professionally skeptical, and this guy just comes around and and throws away a lot of what his professional ethics would would argue um, is his duty as an accounting professional, and threw it all away in order to appease what he believes is i I would assume what he assumes is is a prophet of God.
0: There is something about the LDS Church which tends to have the influence of making members abandon or violate the ethics that they practice every day in their own personal careers. Yeah. I don't know that that happens with everybody. Obviously, it doesn't. But this is a classic example of that. Another example has to do with my old mission companion, Kyle McKay, who's now the church historian, getting up last Wednesday at BYU-Idaho. And giving a talk that would be absolutely ridiculed by every other lawyer. By the way, he was a lawyer by profession before he got called to be the church historian. That's the requirement to be the church historian is that (laughs) you've given your life over and dedicated it to a study of the practice of law. But yeah, so he just totally compromised his ethics, his intelligence as an attorney in order to appease the leaders of the church. Yeah, And I see what's going on. And and of course, that's one thing. But this is this is something much bigger because he's also violating the law in order to do it.
1: Yeah. And when you were on Mormon Stories with uh, uh, Robert Rittner, it reminds me of how Robert described John Gee and Carrie Muelstein and their efforts to promote the Book of Abraham as some legitimate ancient document. And his basic idea was, you know better. And so it made him you know upset that they were that they were sacrificing all of the work that they had done all of the things that they knew and the entire profession and using their authority or their their um how would you call it your your credentials as an egyptologist to then promote the church by sacrificing um you know the factual data in front of them that they knew um from their from their training as Egyptologists I think that that was that's a that's an interest I think that that's a parallel and it depends on how close you are to the church too so if you feel like if you work for BYU or you work for the church directly it seems like that's when those tensions arise
0: right and and would by it's very course I think it's a great example you give of John Guy and Carrie Muelstein who have sacrificed everything that they learned about ethics in Egyptology in order to appease the LDS church and its leaders, with the result that what? They're both of no consequence anywhere outside of Mormonism in Egyptology, and they're relegated to this backwater called BYU.
1: And like you said, a backwater. Um, I have a lot of good friends that are professors at BYU, but it, it does make me worry maybe not in the accounting area like if it's unrelated to church uh church related issues but if i see some research paper that comes out of BYU i'm immediately skeptical because i know that their incentive structure is such that they they may be manipulating the data or they may be engaging in confirmation bias in order to present a message that is confer- church confirming and rather than letting the data speak for what the data are and That's uh, I think that if you decide to work at BYU, that's a that's something you have to wrestle with. It's something I don't think that I would be able to do.
0: Let me clarify that. When I said backwater, I actually was talking about Egyptology. Sure. (laughs) I didn't mean everything and to denigrate every single department at BYU. Uh, But yeah, how strange is it that BYU has two Egyptologists, but no Egyptology department? Yeah. They're hiring him for a reason other than Egyptology, one would surmise. Yeah, (laughs) that's right. Okay. So let's see. We're going back to page 14. We already read, thus, Enzyme Peak Leadership had no confusion about the legal and compliance requirements regarding 13F disclosures. And every time this document says EP Leadership, it means Roger Clark, correct? That's right. Okay, so let's go down to the next paragraph. Roger Clark, EP leadership, notified, huge point, notified the first presidency of its 13F reporting obligations in 1998 at the very inception of Enzyme P. Roger Clark notifies the first presidency of its requirement to file 13F reports. How do we know this?
1: It's in the SEC, uh, the SEC cease and desist order. So the church admits that this is true as well. Ah,
0: very good. So it's their confession. Final paragraph on page 14. Enzyme Peak did not file any 13F forms until 2003. Now, this is interesting to me because Roger Clark is the head. They haven't come up with the idea of these shell companies yet between 1998 and 2003. Correct? That's right. But you've got Enzyme Peak who starts with $7 billion, so certainly well over the $100 million reporting requirement for the 13F quarterlies,
1: right? Yeah, and they're not not filing for five years. How do you account for that? Now, obviously, if you don't file, nobody can know how much
0: money you have. But how do you account for not filing at all when Roger Clark is the head of Enzyme Peak For five years, from 1998 to 2003 and thereafter, but for this time period, he's the head, and they don't file any 13F reports. How does that happen?
1: Yeah, I don't know. I think that that's really odd. I I wonder if they're trying to come up with a solution, and, and as long as they don't file that first 13F, they have the ability to at least say, like, oh, we forgot about this filing. it it slipped our minds. Um, we just created the company and, and, you know, we're on the up and up, don't worry. So as long as they don't file the first time they could have this, uh, plausible deniability. And, um, I, I wonder if that was the strategy or if it was just took a long time to kind of get around to, um, coming up with this scheme. Um, but that's that's the only thing I can think of because once you file the first 13F, you've and then you suddenly disappear, you've given away any opportunity to create a shell company. Um, so that I think that that's probably it. You've given away the game because right now, you know, if you decide to file the first 13F as Enzyme Peak, you've told the public how much the church owns, and that that was the whole point of 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 creating all of this. So.
0: So we got five years, and let's assume they're five equal years from 1998 to 2003. Quarterly filings, five times four quarterly filings is twenty thirteen f filings that were not made by Roger Clark when he knew they were supposed to make them. Is that correct?
1: That's correct, and I don't think that's included in the six hundred thousand errors. But think about all the stocks that they owned from 1998 to 2003. We just don't know Mm -hmm. how much they were, but that's a lot. That's seven. You know, that's going to go get up there in the billions of. Of errors, millions of errors. Okay. So now we go to page
0: 15. Enzyme Peaks shell companies were discovered in 2018. But because remember, that's when the whistleblower blew the whistle. That's when we found out there was $32.7 billion that the church had in the stock market, right? And all these shell companies.
1: It wasn't the whistleblower. This one was the Mormon leaks. This is Mormon leaks, but it was based on a whistleblower, right? I don't know who the uh john always hints john delin always hints that he knows who the person was that told yeah but i don't know if it was a person internal to enzyme peak or i'm going to hint that strong. i know who that is too oh okay but
0: um so Afterwards, there are will you tell whistleblowers me. whistleblowers <laughs> involved and, and that can make it confusing but okay. so let's go to the language and a 2018 okay. report exposed the shell companies, which held $32.7 billion in combined U.S. stocks. The key is this. After that happens, nothing changes. The church doesn't change how it's operating its shell companies, even after it's exposed in 2018. And in fact, I recall from reading the SEC order that what the church actually did was it doubled down and said, well, if people can figure this out, we're not doing a good enough job of hiding how much money we have. So let's hide it better and let's create seven more shell companies or five more shell companies or whatever it is. And let's, you know, distribute it out there more. So this is the thing about Russell M. Nelson and how it ropes Russell M. Nelson into this, because of course he became president. I think it was January or February of 2018. Mm Mm-hmm. And before that, he was not in the first presidency, so he would have been most likely out of the loop of any conversations about Enzyme Peak. So Russell M. Nelson, this is second point on page 15. Russell M. Nelson had been church president for only a few months at the time in 2018, when this exposure occurred about how much money they had in the stock market. But he was president. After the expose, two Shell company business managers resigned their roles and voiced their concerns about what Enzyme Peak had asked them to do. And these two managers had been assigned to two of the newest shell companies in 2017. Okay. Those are the two that you had referred to earlier. That's right. But The kicker is this. Russell Nelson is the president of the church this exposure happens two of the business managers of the shell companies resign their roles and what does enzyme Peak as directed by its owner and operator the first presidency of the LDS church what do they do about the situation spencer
1: nothing it's cr- amazing uh i don't know what russell and nelson was thinking because he may have deferred to the judgment of people who had been around longer mm-hmm. so president Iring, president oaks or um i guess president oaks was new as well but um but this was this was president nelson's chance to do the right thing and also not take the blame individually for it and also potentially throw gordon b hinckley under the bus um, which I think that there's a long kind of rumor that's, uh, you know, some you know, rumors that go around that say that Russell M. Nelson and Gordon B. Hinkley are in this like posthumous feud of some sort. Well, posthumous hmm. on one end, at least posthumous on one end. Um, and this would be his chance to kind of say, like, look at this. Look at what he did. Mm-hmm. And he may have said
0: that behind the scenes, but apparently, as far as actions go. Rather than fix things and comply with the law, the church found two new business managers.
1: Yeah, business as usual, right? So like they just double down. It's just odd.
0: And to make it even worse is that all of this followed internal flags raised by the church auditing department in 2014 and again in 2017. So the church auditing department, which comes in, does their regular audits, right? Of the church. This is the the person who comes up every general conference and says, we've checked everything. Everything's hunky-dory, right? Right. They are actually doing internal audits. And in 2014, they say, hey, this whole shell model thing you've got going, this might be deemed illegal by the Securities and Exchange Commission. And then nothing changes, of course, because, well, because that's the whole point of it, right? They know it's good, it might be deemed illegal, but they're doing it anyway. The, in 2017, three years later, church auditing says the same thing. Hey guys, this could be a problem with the SEC. Well, we're not changing anything. This is the way we've designed it. And this is the way we're going to keep people from knowing how much money we have. So Russell Nelson does not escape calumny in this because he appears to be involved in it. Well, by the way, this idea occurred to me as you were speaking, Spencer. You know. Elder Eyring is the common denominator, isn't he?
1: In yeah, the he's been presidency. around for a long time. Yeah.
0: And, and before that, he was in the, the presiding bishopric. He was the presiding bishop before being called as an apostle, correct?
1: Yeah, I think so. I think you're right. You know, he, he
0: strikes me as somebody, I just always wondered, what what is so important about Elder Eyring that he's always making the cut to be in the first presidency? Mm. He's not exactly that charismatic an individual or anything else. I can't see anything about him that if I were president, I'd say, Oh, let me get Hank in here, except for one fact that's now starting to become clear to me. He's the guy with the business acumen.
1: Hmm. It makes sense. Yeah. I mean, that adds up. There's no, there's no smoking gun that hypothesis in my view but it is he is the common denominator at the very least he holds likely the uh apart from roger clark probably the most blame for all of this because he also has the 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 latent understanding of how regulatory environment works and so um he should have known better but Russell nelson too he he had an opportunity here to do the right thing and it's odd that he chose maybe it's not odd to people who know the church but he had the opportunity to to come in find that there was something wrong and they, he had all these indicators he had the internal audit coming out um he had the the employees that were quitting he had the mormon leaks the report that was coming out and he could have said the cat's out of the bag there's no reason for us to not come forward now and save his own skin in the process of doing of doing this it's sort of like when a new football coach comes in and just cleans house and can just point to the past guy and say yeah this year was bad but it's because of all the problems of the prior coach that could have been russell m nelson's approach Mm -hmm. and it would have been a very logical approach but i suppose that he promotes and prioritizes not ever making the church look bad as the primary purpose of, of everything that he does and so Obviously, you know, if you come forward and you come clean, the church looks a little bad. And in 2010, the SEC underwent its own internal F- investigation about how well they were dealing with 13F filings. And the SEC itself came to the conclusion that it wasn't doing a very good job of enforcing 13Fs. And you might look back at this case and say, well, yeah, obviously. <laughs> yeah. Um but maybe maybe that factored into the decision that the SEC itself had not um, allocated a lot of enforcement resources. They did, I don't even think they had a team looking through, combing through 13F filings. Um, and so and maybe that'll change going forward. But I just that might have been a factor into the decision. Maybe they thought they could really get away with it forever. I don't know.
0: Well, my experience is that most of my clients, the white collar clients who get charged with crimes, they do think they can get away with it forever until they get caught. Yeah. They're always worried <laughs> about it, but they still think they can get away with it.
1: Yeah. And that's why they're your clients, because they because they can't. Yes. Uh, and my, so, the other
0: part of my yeah. experience is that people who commit white collar crime, which occurs over years and years and years of embezzlement or whatever it is they're doing, I've never yet had encountered one who had the foresight. To take some of that money they're siphoning off and put it in the bank account to pay a lawyer to represent them <laughs> when they get
1: caught. Yeah, right. They don't, they aren't forecasting getting caught. They're a little too narcissistic for that. Exactly. That's how I know they're not planning on getting caught because they don't save
0: up money to to hire an attorney. <laughs> uh right. let's see here. Okay, so now going to page 16, are we ready to do that? Sure. Why all the effort and legal risk is what this question is at the top of page 16. Church leaders approved these unlawful tactics primarily, by the way, let's make this clear. These tactics, these unlawful tactics were approved by the first presidency. Yes or no, Spencer?
1: Yes. Yeah. The How SEC we know that? and the church agreed to it, to that. they admitted the, it. Yeah. Yes, exactly.
0: In the SEC order, church leaders approved these unlawful tactics primarily due to fear that informing or that informed members, members who know about this, might stop donating. We estimate, and that's the widow's might. we estimate the church received $80 to $95 billion in tithing from 1999 to 2019, the period of active violations of Section 13F law. So they're receiving almost $100 billion in tithing over the time period that the Enzyme Peak has been up and running and using this fraudulent reporting method, and the shell companies. And this is the quote here on page 16 from Roger Clark, the head of Ensign Peak, which gave it all away. So many times I talk about the fact that the church went through all of this effort, and it's an enormous amount of effort over two decades in order to keep the public and the government in the dark about how much money the church had just in the U.S. stock market, right? And people question me on that and say, well, how do you know that you're mind reading? That's not really why. There's all these other reasons why they really do it. No, I'm not mind reading. This is what Roger Clark, the head of Enzyme Peak said on the record, February 8th, 2020, Wall Street Journal. Can you read the money quote, Spencer?
1: Yeah, he said, paying tithing is more of a sense of commitment than it is the church needing the money. So they, referring to the church, so they never wanted to be in a position where people felt like, you know, they, members, shouldn't make a contribution.
0: All right. I'm going to read that once again, and then I want you to comment on it. Yeah. This is the quote from Roger Clark. Paying tithing is more of a sense of commitment than it is the church needing the money. So they, the church, never wanted to be in a position where people felt like, you know, They shouldn't make a contribution, period, end of quote. It sounds to me like he's being upfront and open about at least the fact that this was the whole reason that they engaged in this fraudulent shell company enterprise in the first place. What do you think?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And the first statement kind of contradicts the second. It says, you know, paying tithing is about faith. It's about commitment to the Lord. It's not about the church needing the money. Mm -hmm. So, we didn't want to show them how much money we had. I just, to me, it shows that they're apparently not uh, sharing that message well enough. Like, why not? Why would that be a factor then if paying tithing is more of a sense of commitment and it's more about faith? Mm -hmm. Why would it matter? Right. It doesn't matter, I think, for most faithful members. I think they say, I don't care what the church does with the money. It's not mine. It's the Lord's. I'm going to pay it anyway. Mm Mm-hmm. And that's the attitude that they want people to have so then why act as though that's not the way people would act it's just it's it's duplicitous
0: and i would argue that we don't even need this quote to know that this was the whole purpose because every single aspect of this entire scheme was designed to keep the public from knowing how much money the church had i suppose there could be different reasons for that But the most obvious one is because they want people to keep tithing and paying their tithing to the church. And if common sense to reach that conclusion were not enough, we have this nice confession by Roger Clark, who should know, since he was the head of Enzyme Peak for 20 years.
1: Yeah. yep, He was the one that designed this whole thing. So
0: So, so page 16 is a really important page. In this latest document, we go to page 17. It talks about the $5 million civil penalty. Oh, this is important too, because it was a $5 million civil penalty. And a lot of people are out there saying, oh my gosh, well, that's nothing. These would be defenders of the church, right? That's nothing. That's peanuts. Uh, That's chump change. There's other people and other investment companies that have been fined so much more than the church was fined with this measly $5 million. But then it turns out that actually they're comparing apples with oranges. That what we're talking Hmm. about here is a relatively modest form of fraud in that the church through its 13 or 12 LLC shell companies, right? The shell companies don't really exist and we know all the problems with it, but at least the church has accounted for all of its securities holdings in the U.S. stock market through all the different shell companies, right? Right. There's no place where they're not accounting for them. Well, except for the first five years of Enzyme Peak's existence where they didn't account for them at all. Yeah. But here with the shell companies, they're accounting for them. It's just they're doing it through all the different shell companies. It's not a situation where they're misrepresenting the amount and nature and value of the stocks they actually hold. And that's a big difference, right? That's right, yeah. So it's in the latter kind of instances where there are much bigger fines against investment companies. But Widows Might went back this past week and actually did some research into other companies that were fined specifically because of the same issue that the church got fined over which was the 13F filings being done improperly. And the first thing that surprised me was that in the whole course of their research, at least since 1995 up to 2023, guess how many times companies got fined for filing improper 13F
1: filings? You don't have to guess, because you don't have to guess. (laughs) But three yeah, times. Three times before Enzyme Peak. I mean, that is just that was news to me. I had kind of bought hook, line, and sinker, this notion told to me that you know these things are common. It's not a big deal. 13F filings are there are problems with them. You know, people, you know, they make mistakes. And in fact, I found this article that was shared with me. I think it was promoted. It's called public I don't know where that, that it, they, the public square mag, um, I think it might be partly owned by the church, but I'm not sure. But their, their staff provided it back in February 21st, 2023. They said, get the facts on the SEC fine against Enzyme Peak Advisors. This is obviously a faithful perspective. Here are a couple of things that they say. How does that penalty, the $5 million penalty compare to other penalties? Was it too high or too low? And their argument is in the fiscal year 2022, the SEC recovered 4.19 billion in penalties and the average penalty was 5.51 million. Well, the the problem with that obviously is that these aren't 13F filing penalties. These are all the penalties. And when you take an average that includes um, not a normal distribution, so there are probably some penalties that were on the very, very, very high end that you're not going to, you shouldn't just take an average, a mean average and say that 5.51 million is is right where the church should be. Mm-hmm. Because if you were to actually look at just the specific instance of 13F filings, 5.5 or 5.51 million is not the average at all. It's something closer to like uh, 25,000 or something like that, right? Uh, 50,000. Yeah. Let me give you
0: the data on this <laughs> and actually give it to the audience. So these three times that companies have been fined by the SEC for improperly filing 13F documents. Is Cabot, that's the name of the investment firm, back in 1996, got fined $12.5 thousand dollars for improperly filing. And this, by the way, has to have a finding by the SEC that it was done intentionally, right? Because if it's a mistake, then that's something different. Or do I have that wrong?
1: Uh, I think you're right, yeah.
0: So there's intentionality in each of these, almost certainly. So Cabot gets fined $12.5 thousand dollars in 1996, substantially less than the five million dollars the church got fined. Mogi, M-O-G-Y, gets fined, oh, $12.5 thousand dollars. And that's in 2001, five years later. And then the third one is Quattro in 2007, which must have done some really, really bad things. Because unlike Cabot and Mogi, which each got fined 12 dollars for improper 13F filings, Quattro gets filed a whopping $100,000 in 2007. And that's it as far as fines because of 13F filing problems. So that is on this page 17. This is significant, I think. And we read that the $5 million combined civil penalty Assessed against the church and EP, even though it's essentially the same thing, is five is 50 times larger, 50 times larger than any previous fine for violations of Exchange Act disclosure laws. That's a huge fact. What do you think?
1: Yeah, it's huge. And it directly contradicts this idea that this was just peanuts, that this wasn't that the SEC didn't see this as a big deal. Because within the realm of 13F violations, sure, in 13F violations, uh, 13F filings are not the most important filings. They're very simple filings. They're very easy. Um, but, you know, when it comes to 13F filings, this is this is probably as bad as it could get um, in terms of defrauding. It's as
0: bad <laughs> as it's ever been, certainly, if we are to judge by the fine, 15, 50 times more than any previous fine. Right, yeah. And then there's this comment, which I think is important to make, that's here on this page, that section 13F violations, they're not common, as we can see, but they're not common because the law is easy to understand (laughs) and follow. That's why they're so uncommon.
1: Yeah. And let me clarify again. This is, again, from the faithful source. One of the questions that they asked was, is getting fined by the SEC a big problem for an investment fund or relatively common? And they said, obviously, a fund never wants to be fined. But fines like this are common. About 5% of investment funds are fined by the SEC each year. Let's just set aside that that's true. They're fined for other things. They're not fined for 13F filings, right? Mm -hmm. So they say experts compare this to a traffic ticket. And these kinds of investigations are also especially common when multiple entities are involved. This is funny. When multiple entities are involved, such as in the case of the EPA. Uh, So (laughs) So, so now that it's out
0: there, we're going to talk about it like that. This has always been known Yeah, there's multiple and that entities here.
1: Yes. As if these shell companies represent multiple entities. So, um, so, you know, the, when you look at the apologetics, they try and like cast it in, in broad terms, as if the sec is always going after people. And this is, this is a very unique case for the sec. They spent a lot of effort going after the church. You know, they started their investigation back in, in 2018. And it's been ongoing uh, for five years or so. And so this is something that the, the SEC dedicated a lot of resources to. They ob- obviously thought that this was an egregious violation. Yes.
0: And we can see that with these statistics dug up once again by the widow's might. Now, page 18 has a timeline of key events. I don't know that we're going to go over each of these. But basically what it does is it goes from 1997 to 2023, and it has the first presidencies, the people who were in the first presidency during the relevant time periods, and what it is that occurred as far as Enzyme Peak during the time period from 1997 to 2023. It's a valuable document. I'm just not sure that it would be helpful for us to go over here. I think we've gone over all of this information before, but this lays out it lays it out in a different format that's easy to follow. Yeah. And it also shows a lot of familiar faces who were involved that's, in this fraud. Yeah. Faces that I know and at one point or other used to sustain as prophecies and revelators. Right. Okay, now we get to the last and what I think is one of the most fun parts of this report, which is where it analyzes certain sayings and statements that the church made in its press release after this came to light on February 21st of 2023. This is where we get to the part where the church not only lied to the federal government, which made it so it had to pay this fine and have this order brought out in public where it took responsibility by which i mean the first presidency now the church issues a statement which tries to once again cover the first presidency and make it sound like they didn't do anything wrong in spite of the fact that they have already signed a document which is the sec order which admits that they did things that were wrong so They've lied to the federal government for 20 years and, on this issue, and now they're going to lie to the membership. Church statement on the SEC settlement with our clarifications and our means the widows might. Page 19. The church released a statement after the SEC order and press release were published. We offer clarifications to four of the QA responses in the church's statement. Because of the potential for confusion. By the way, I love the widow's might because it is so fair. It is so balanced. It is right down the middle. We're offering clarifications. Why? Because of the potential for confusion, which when I read that and I see what it is they're talking about, in other words, this is places where the church is trying to deceive the membership of the church and make them think something different happened. That's the confusion Mm -hmm. that the widow's might report is trying to alleviate by this part of its report. Spencer, do you have anything you want to say before you go into this next part? I know I'm prone to monologuing. Part of that's because I do my own show at RFM and I'm the only one doing the talking most of the time, but I want this to make sure I give you enough space to say what you want to say.
1: You're doing great. This is
0: great. Okay. Select questions. These are select questions and answers in the Q&A section of the church's statement on SEC settlement, because when they released their statement, they also released part of it was a and a So the church asks itself its own question in its own statement, what are Forms 13-F? Answer in the church's own statement, investment managers who oversee a portfolio of public equities above a certain threshold are required to file Forms 13-F with the SEC quarterly. These forms publicly disclose the names of the securities and their values, period, end of answer. So then the clarification, can you tell us what the clarification is on this? Because that might, I think that's true. It's just not the whole truth. And they're actually right. not saying the part of the truth that got him in trouble.
1: Yeah. It's, it's not just that you disclose the names of the securities and their values. And as we talked about throughout this, this episode, we've talked about how you have to also disclose three essential items. One of them being other managers that are involved in the decision making process. So, if you have shared discretion, investment discretion in general, and voting authority. And the church just glosses over that as if that is not a big deal, a big part of the 13F. Well, it just so happens that those are the parts of the 13F that they were misreporting on. Um, Those were the misstatements that the SEC found on those three essential items. And um, so, it's odd that they, you know, it's strategic right this whole this whole press release is strategic but it's interesting that they start off with this very innocuous question what are Forms 13f well let us tell you and and um, it just i don't i don't I, i'm not like an expert in in pr but when you know the truth it bubbles up like this anger in me i just want to pull my hair out that they're being so obfuscating or uh, so obvious what's the word obfuscational <laughs> obfuscatory effuscatory i'm not going to look it up <laughs> so deceptive there um, you go yeah a, yeah so so they a lot of this they they ask the question as if somebody has asked it and then they answer either a different question or they answer the question but without without what people would want to know if they were asking the sec how would the sec respond to this? Mm-hmm. If in the context of this case, the SEC would say, for 13F, you have to file um, a, a over if you're an investor over a certain threshold, which is what the church said, you have to disclose the names of the securities of their values. But you also have to report in, in the 13F who has discretion over these funds, who has voting authority over these funds, if there are other managers that are involved in, in making investment decisions. And... That's what the SEC would tell you, because that's the context that's actually important um, in uh, in this case.
0: This is one of these places where I see the church issuing something like a statement, or sometimes they'll do it in the talk, where they don't give you the whole story. And you have to actually be conversant or an expert in the field or a professor in the field, such as you are, to know what it is they're not saying. And why it is they're not saying it. 99% of the members don't have that expertise to realize that they're not getting the full truth and why they're not getting the full truth from the church. And if you're like me, it's that fact. And the fact that you do have the experience to know what it is they're not saying and why that causes you such distress or being so upset or wanting to pull your hair out.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's like this, this, this two different realities. And it's like, can we not at least agree on the facts? Um, that's annoying. Uh, it's, it's hard as like, a as somebody who deals constantly with data to have an entity that refuses to accept what is readily apparent with everybody's in front of everyone and to argue that something else exists in, in um, in front of our eyes. And
0: right. they and do that a, in
1: lots of ways. Right. So
0: yes. And this is in the context of, we just got caught. I mean, this. I know this thing has been going on for five years and you know about it, church, because you've been doing this game for 20 years. You've been under investigation for five and now you're doing a five million dollar settlement. You had to be brought kicking and screaming. I can't imagine how many arms got twisted in order to get him to sign off on this SEC order as agreed facts because it says the first presidency was involved. There's no way they did that happily. Or willingly, or without substantial pressure, which I think Mm -hmm. was going to trial, frankly. So, but then they come out with their statement where they're going to try and absolve the first presidency of doing what it is that the first presidency admitted to being involved in in the SEC order. Here's the second thing, second Q and A, page twenty, church statement on the SEC settlement and our clarifications. So I think each of these pages has the same title. Here's the second question on the church's own press release. Did the church know about the practices at Ensign Peak described in the order? So this is the question the church is asking on its own press release, and it's going to give its own answer to the question. But by the way, we know from reading the order that the church did know about the practices at Ensign Peak, and we know that the church specifically authorized, and the church means the first presidency, the church knew about them and authorized them. We know that from the order, correct? Right. So here's the question. Did the church know about the practices that Ensign Peak described in the order? We know the answer to that if we've read the order, but their answer to this question in the church's press release sounds different. Here's the answer. And then I'll want your, your comments on this. Answer, the church's senior leadership, that's the first presidency throughout the order, the church's senior leadership received and relied Upon legal counsel when it approved of the use of the external companies to make the filings. Enzyme Peak handled the mechanics of the filing process. The church's senior leadership never prepared or filed the specific reports at issue period. Your thoughts? on that statement by the church.
1: Well, you know, so if, if the church leadership wants to claim ignorance, which is what it seems to be trying to do, then Roger Clark needs to be fired and people need to be fired for this. Right. Mm -hmm. So I, 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 on one hand, that's my first impression on the second hand, we know that all of that, the, the involvement um, started when the first presidency first, Um, got the ball rolling by saying we're worried that the public is going to know how much is in the fund. Mm -hmm. So what's not listed here, did the church know about the practices? The church initiated the practices. The church was the one that asked for legal advice because they were looking to hide. The church was the one that directed Ensign Peak to engage in this process. So I, even though they didn't sign it, which would be a stupid thing for the first presidency to do, that's why you have employees to do things for you. Right. doesn't absolve them of any guilt. And it's, it's just an odd, again, it drives me nuts that they use this language, but if they're going to claim bad legal advice and you, we can get into this, but you're the lawyer, but widows might kind of goes through a couple of reasons why this is uh, this is an odd thing. Oh,
0: absolutely. Um, it's so odd because we're dealing in the context of the first presidency meeting with the president or the head. What's the what's the name of the office that Roger Clark held? Is it general manager over Enzyme Peak? Is that what it's called? Yeah. Okay. So he's the general manager of Enzyme Peak. He's the head guy. They meet on a regular basis with the first presidency. Roger Clark, we've already established, knows exactly how to file these 13F forms. He does it all the time with his analytic investment company, Right. Right. He's tops in his field. This is this is easy peasy stuff. This is very basic stuff for him. He knows right. all about it. So now he's meeting with the first presidency, getting their directive. They want to hide how much money they have. And what? Some lawyers are supposed to come in and say, oh, we've got this idea of how you can violate the law in hundreds of different ways by filing these fake 13F forms for these shell companies. And Roger Clark is supposed to go, oh, that sounds like a great idea. I'm surprised I never thought of it.
1: Yeah. This isn't something that he concocted. It would have to be the church leadership would want to say, because if the church leadership just said, just follow the law, then he would have followed the law properly. You mean, Like
0: that article of faith says.
1: Yeah. Is yeah. so it the
0: 13th one? I think it's number 13. Isn't that how mm-hmm. many shell companies total there were? I'm starting to sense a pattern.
1: <laughs> Upholding and, and honoring the law. Something like, I think it might be 10. I don't know. Yeah, you're right.
0: Yeah, it's probably not 13. That'd be too obvious. They could figure out it was Mormon from that. Anyway, but yeah. And so, of course, they talk about the church's senior leadership. The first presidency received and relied upon legal counsel. It's those damn lawyers. It's always the lawyers. 95% of lawyers give the rest of us a bad name. They received and relied upon legal counsel when it approved of the use of the external companies to make the filings. Okay. Mm Mm-hmm. Now, that could be totally true, right? But it doesn't say what is implied by it. What they're implying is that we got bad legal advice and they told us we could do this and and the lawyer screwed us. And so they should be fired, which apparently they haven't been. Why? Because it didn't happen. Right. But that's not what it actually says if you parse it out. This is the art of equivocation, of saying one thing, trying to make it sound one way, but actually, you're not saying that you're saying something else. So all they're saying is that they received and relied upon legal counsel when the first presidency approved of the use of the external companies to make the filings. Well, there was nothing wrong with these shell companies. There's shell companies all over the place. Mm-hmm. What made it illegal wasn't that they created shell companies. What made it illegal was the fact that they lied multiple times on each of the 13 F violations as we've already gone over the 13 F forms, right? So they haven't said what it is they want the reader to take from it. So the clarification that's given by the widow's might here is the answer strongly implies church leaders are claiming bad legal advice. I mean, it's hard to read that and not come away with that impression. Now, this is something I did not know. And this is fascinating to me. Okay. So let me just say it in my own words. First, if, during the course of this five-year investigation that the SEC was doing on the church and EP, if they had ever said, Hey, we got bad legal advice and our lawyers told us we could do this. And we didn't know it was against the law, but those dang lawyers, they screwed us over. That is something that the SEC would have been required to investigate because that's a defense. They're saying we didn't do this intentionally. We got bad legal advice. Oh, okay. So, The problem, though, is that if they say that, then they can talk, SEC can talk to the lawyers. Did you give them this legal advice? Let's see all the emails. Let's see all the communications and everything and see what supports the church's theory that they got bad legal advice. That never happened. And the reason we know that that never happened, that that the church never claimed that to the SEC is twofold. First off, because the SEC has to investigate that, and it has to show up in their final order.
1: And the church would have an incentive for it to be in the final order. Of course. Not just they? the SEC. The the church would love to be able to have in that final cease and desist order that the church got legal advice that ended up being bad, and to see the legal firm get f- fined instead of the church or you know, that would have been just golden for the church. That's what they would love to, to fall back on.
0: And so, of course, what we know from that or what we can reasonably infer is that the evidence would not have supported that claim if the church had made it to the SEC. Exactly. Yep. Right.
1: Yes. So absolutely.
0: if the church had made that claim, bad legal advice to the SEC, it would have shown up in the SEC's order because it would have said this claim was made. We investigated it. And this is what we found. Every time, my understanding is, every time that that defense is raised, and it is raised, believe it or not, it is investigated and it has to show up in the order. It never shows up in the order that the church raised as a defense to the SEC that they relied on bad legal advice, which means they never made that claim to the SEC, likely because they knew if they made the claim, the SEC would investigate and find out that that claim was not true. Fair enough so far? Yeah, that's absolutely right. All right. So now, having never made that claim to the SEC during the five years in, of investigation, the SEC comes out with this order, which they've hammered out with the church and with the first presidency as to the language of the order, the nine-page order. It comes out, and what does the church do? The church claims that it relied on bad legal advice. What do you think of that?
1: So I, I have an anonymous source, uh separate from widow's might that's involved in the sec and they said that the sec was this is directly to the sec so um but anonymous source within the sec the sec was furious about the church's response specifically surrounding this legal advice argument why because it was never brought up in the investigation not once it was never thought of in the investigation it was never mentioned or hinted at in the investigation and then the church sort of tries to uh you know lay the blame on this mysterious entity that has never that was never even allowed to be investigated and so uh, obviously you know the church uh, the sec was also just mad at the whole press release that the church provided because it seemed to be offering some alternative view of the facts that made no sense when you read the the sec uh, order um and so even the fact that the sec was mad about it i don't know if the sec is going to do anything about it they consider the matter most likely closed at this point but but that's a but it's telling right that they that the sec itself was was really mad that the church came forward with this thing this ridiculous argument
0: And an argument that shows that they're lying to the members. And this really, really hacks me off as well. Because they've just been caught red-handed, hence the name of tonight's episode, Red-Handed. And they've admitted that they were caught red-handed in the SEC order. And now they're turning around and presenting to the church an idea that they never brought up to the SEC, that they got bad legal advice. And the reason they never brought it up to the SEC is because they knew if the SEC investigated it, They would have found out that that claim was not true.
1: That's right. Yep. Yep.
0: Wow. Okay. So here's the clarification from the document page 20. This is a dynamite page. The clarification on the church's Q and a on this one is answer strongly implies church leaders are claiming bad legal advice. And then they break down their comments under three subheadings. A. If during the SEC investigation, the church had claimed bad legal advice for any violations of the law or other compliance failures, it would have resulted in attorney-client privilege being waived as related to the SEC matter, an investigation of privileged communications, and a summary of the investigation in the SEC order. B, nothing of this nature is mentioned anywhere in the SEC order. And C, thus the phrase relied upon legal counsel in the church's statement appears to have no meaning as related to justifying church leaders for approving Enzyme Peaks practices and is stated only for PR reasons, which is a very nice way of saying they're lying to cover their ass.
1: And it's worked. I've seen several times where, you know, uh, faithful members have said, well, you know, like their profits aren't perfect. They just they they. They just relied on, on lawyers that gave bad advice and it's just, it's hard to, it's hard to just nod your head and say, okay, that's what you want to believe, but know that the, the right information is there. Um, it's tough, especially because the people that are really victimized by this action are the members themselves that are fighting tooth and nail to defend the church in this.
0: Yeah, they're very willing victims, and in fact, they fight for their ability to continue to be victims. That's right. I think the expression you were looking for was, uh, it's hard to bow your head and say yes (laughs) when you encounter these arguments from members. But yeah, not only are they being lied to by the first presidency in this statement, they want to be lied to. Tell me lies, tell me lies, tell me sweet little lies. That's Fleetwood Mac, by the way, in case you didn't know.
1: You've, you've played it a couple of times on the end of your podcast episodes. I like that. I hope I
0: haven't. I don't like Fleetwood Mac.
1: But oh, yeah, and there's no longer any.
0: OK, we won't even go into that in the whole YouTube thing with me having to change the music and take off all those clever outros because they get flagged as copyright oh. violations. OK, yeah, I'm still mad at YouTube about that. But anyway, here we go to page 21. This is the third, I think it is, the third Q&A on the church statement. Question, has the reporting practice that prompted the SEC cease and desist order now stopped? Oh, this is a good one. I love this one. Answer, once again, church document, answer yes. In June 2019, remember that date and year. In June 2019, the SEC first expressed concern about Enzyme Peak's reporting approach. Enzyme Peak adjusted its approach. And began filing a single aggregated report, which what they should have been doing from the beginning, filed a single aggregated report. In other words, Enzyme Peak filed its own 13 F statements, claiming all the stocks that it's owned for 20 years. Since that time, going on with the church's answer to its own question, since that time, 13 quarterly reports have been filed in full accordance with SEC requirements. I almost see them taking a victory lap for how righteous they are. But there's some problems with that statement. What are those, Spencer?
1: Yeah, so they imply, and this is on the widow's might thing, the clarification is that the answer implies that an EP immediately began filing a single aggregated report. Because it says in June 2019, they first approached us, and then Enzyme Peak adjusted its approach. What the truth is, though, is that Enzyme Peak continued to use its shell companies for two more 13F quarters um, for thir- two more filings. And then their first consolidated filing was filed in February 2020, which was nine months after the SEC first notified the church of its investigation. And so it, it, it acts as though like, oh, we immediately, once the SEC told us that we were in violation, we started to comply. It implies as though as, that there was some sort of misunderstanding. And instead, the church still dragged its heels. And it's it's interesting. I think the timing is interesting because February 2020 is the report for the last quarter of 2019. And in December of 2019 is when the the whistleblower leak related to David Nielsen's um, whistleblowing came out. Oh, and is that about the total amount that Insane Peak had? Right. And so I, I wonder if at that point they were like, we are up to our necks in this, right? We're just, we, this is too much to overcome. It's time to start, you know, just complying. You mean obeying the law?
0: Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's time to stop defrauding the federal government, I think. I think they're to us.
1: Right. Like once it starts to get into Wall Street Journal articles, it seems <laughs> as though the Mormon leaks thing didn't come. The Mormon leaks, uh, surprisingly, the Mormon leaks uh, leak in 2018, didn't get a lot of press, but the whistleblower leak in, in December of 2019 did get a lot of press. Mm.
0: Now, this and is interesting because this is the last part on this page, because it does point out that as of 1217, December 17, 2019, almost certainly in response to the whistleblower coming out about the total amount of money that the church has, the church issues a statement which itself is not true. Okay, and the reason it's not true is because of what we've been talking about in this chronology. Remember, it's June of 2019. The SEC first expresses concern about Enzyme Peak's reporting approach. But EP continues to do its shell company filings for two more quarters, right? For the quarters ending June 30th and September 30th of 2019. The next filing, I believe, is the one from February of 2020, right? Right. So as of December of the preceding year, December of 2019, they're still in violation of their filing requirements under the shell companies, correct? Correct. Yeah. They haven't corrected it. They won't correct it until February of 2020. But the church issues a statement that says, quote, the church complies with all applicable law governing our donations, investments, taxes, and reserves, period, end of quote. That is not a true statement as of the date it was given. Is that it was correct? a lie.
1: That's absolutely a lie by the church.
0: Wow. Enzyme Peak, going on with the, the bottom of this page, page 21, Enzyme Peak, with first presidency approval, had not yet filed a single correct and complete Form 13F in over 20 years, as required by law, as of December 17th, 2019, when they made this statement that they comply with all laws governing investments.
1: Yeah, and they knew that they that was true, and they were under SCC investigation over this.
0: When you say they and knew that that was true, do you mean they knew that it was not true, that statement?
1: Correct. They knew that they were not in compliance with the law. Yeah. Right.
0: Wow. What do you do? I mean, honestly, you know, I know I'm, I'm sort of outside the thrall of Mormonism, but if I just look at this like an attorney, or I think like a reasonable human being, and if if I'm thinking about the church leaders as being human beings, which they are, if a person is going to lie about things like this, what will they not lie about? Right. Yeah. And if the reason for lying and defrauding the federal government for over 20 years is to keep members paying tithing. What else might they lie about in order to keep members paying tithing? That's my question.
1: Yeah, what is the church not willing to do to keep members in the church? I don't I don't know that there is a limit. And it it's scriptural, right? You have uh, prophets that are willing to kill unconscious people on behalf of whatever God says. Yes. Follow the prophet. You have all sorts of um, normally, just normal, well-adjusted human beings would, would argue that these things are morally reprehensible and they do them for, to advance the cause of the church. And mm-hmm. I, I really struggle with that idea that there's there's no ethical boundary. And you see it here. Roger Clark was willing to um, forego all of his training um, you see it with John Gee and Carrie muhlstein You see it with the first presidency and statements like this, where they just outright lie.
0: And Kyle McKay as the new church historian.
1: Yeah. It's just, it's, it's, it's an odd compartmentalization of ethics that exists within the church where For, anything yes. goes. Right. It, and and the, it, no matter what com- your
0: ethics are, they are subservient to the needs of the church.
1: Yeah. And I say compartmentalized because, in any other scenario, they are very ethical. They seem to be, to me, to be ethical people. Mm-hmm. I, I don't. I seem. I think that politicians that are LDS are generally very ethical in relation to other politicians. I, I think that in general, you know that that Roger Clark is on the up and up when it comes to um, complying with the law. When it comes to the f- uh, finances of his of his other investment firm. It's this weird area where you're willing to sort of do whatever the church asks. And it's, um, it's a red flag for me. There should be, there should be at least some bar of, you know, if, if God asked me to kill someone, you have to be willing to say no at some point. I think, I think that otherwise you are lost. You are, uh, you're brainwashed in a sense. Um, Or church
0: broke, as the expression is.
1: Church broke. And you even saw it with Russell M. Nelson. He didn't do the right thing when he came in to the presidency. He had the chance right there to come forward, to come clean on behalf of the church. As the church's sole corporation owner, he could have come forward and come clean. And even then, he sort of prioritized the church over his own reputation and, and just general goodness, general moral standards, right? Yeah, I've
0: coined the expression "Mormonism makes liars of us all." I may have to update that and say "Mormonism makes felons of some of us."
1: <laughs> if if Mormonism asks us, asks it of us, we're all yeah. potential felons.
0: It is yeah. the it is the Mountain Meadows massacre rationale all over again. Yeah, that's right. And it's Mountain Meadows massacre is not a different thing. It's just a matter of degree. It's the same type of phenomenon, I think.
1: Well, and if you're a faithful member. I think that the the my immediate response to whatever I was just saying would be that, well, the prophet's not going to ask me to do anything wrong.. Huh. But we see this in other scenarios over and over again. We see it with polygamy. We see it with justification of racial um indifference or or racial segregation. We see we've seen it over and over and over again. my I think that my bigotry towards LGBTQ, People in, at a young age was completely um, driven by by church policy. Once I once I gave up the church as as like the arbiter of truth, immediately in my conscience there was this low you know this lifted burden that I no longer had to justify, and so it's happening behind the scenes for every single member. I think. Uh, wherein they have to justify what they would normally think is abhorrent behavior or thought processes. And yeah, and the
0: more we justify them, the more easy it is for us to adopt them for our own. Right. Sure. Yeah. Wow. Well, we got one page left, and this is the fourth Q&A that the Withers might is going to address. This is a remarkable Q&A because honestly, this is a real dumb one. Okay. (laughs) Like,
1: why even put the question in,
0: right? Why even put this question in? But the church puts the question and the answer. The question is, did Enzyme Peak, by the way, not the church? (laughs) Yeah. Did Enzyme Peak fail to comply with SEC regulations? Now the thing that's stupid about that is that is a yes or no question. Mm
1: -hmm.
0: And the answer is yes. Mm -hmm. But they never answer the question. They answer they ask a legitimate question, which is a yes or no question. They never answer it. Instead, the answer is this. We reached resolution with the SEC. We affirm our commitment to comply with the law. Regret mistakes made and now consider this matter closed. I'm going to read that last sentence a little quicker so it makes more sense grammatically. We affirm our commitment to comply with the law, regret mistakes made, and now consider this matter closed. Well, wow. what do you think about that answer?
1: <laughs> it isn't an answer. There is no answer there, right? It's uh Well, it must be an yes answer no because question. it comes
0: right after the capital A colon. So it says it's the <laughs> answer, so it must be the answer, right?
1: It almost looked like when I first read this thing, I thought is that like did they accidentally <laughs> put this, put answer this in the to wrong... a different question? <laughs> yeah, right? <laughs> it literally seems that way. Um yeah. I mean, they say that we regret mistakes made. Well, what were those mistakes? What are you talking about? Yeah. And there's no, the there's no clarification. Yeah. Yeah. And so, if the church is trying to inform anyone about what the situation was, it's just a really poor job. And honestly, you know, if you're on the fence with the church, I feel like these are the types of things that put me over the fence. It's yeah. the apologetics, it's the non transparency, it's the beating around the bush. That tells me that they know they're guilty and they just refuse to just be open about it that's the that's what really got me you know you read like i sat down with like a member of the of the board of fair mormon who lives in my town yeah for lunch and Is that scott gordon uh it's um uh mcnab paul mcnab oh, okay i didn't know about him he's he's maybe not as involved anymore but he was part of the board And he, it was part of the state presence. He sits down with me over lunch. Very nice. But his reasonings were just so, um, it's just very hard to stay in the church when you have been told that, that this is the truth and that the church is on the up and up. And then you get told, well, no, you should still stay, even though everything that you're encountering is legitimate and there's no way that we can actually counter it. It's just really wow. gets frustrating. And that's a, that guy who's on the chair uh, on the board of fair, which is
0: totally devoted to giving defenses to the church.
1: He was kind of saying, you know, like you don't have to be Orthodox. You can, you know, sort of like you can create your own truth. You know, you can cor- sort of approach the Book of Mormon in a different way. Well, this is and, what the
0: apologists have all done, by the way.
1: Yeah. And he he, he sent me to Book of Mormon Central. He sent me to, to John Gee's work. And it, 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 it expedited my exit because of that, right? It was just, I was like, this is the best you have to yes. give. And there's there, the a lot of the answers just aren't even answers to the questions.
0: And this isn't an answer to the question. And it contains what I consider to be an obvious misstatement. Yeah. They don't regret any mistakes that were made. First off, they weren't mistakes. That part's a lie. These were they intentional were acts. Caught. Yeah. They don't regret anything. If they had, they wouldn't have done it in the first place. And they certainly would have gotten their act together after the first whistleblower report came out in 2018. They regret yeah. nothing. Yeah. Now, the clarification from the the uh, Widows Might Report on this Q&A is, while the church is not legally required to admit wrongdoing, it cannot deny any of the allegations set forth in the SEC order. Can you tell me why that is? Uh, but because the church was, can't deny any of the allegations. Is it because it was a mutually drafted
1: document that the right. church agreed to? It's part of the settlement. And so they have to agree to not deny any of the allegations in order to close the matter with the SEC.
0: So if yeah. this were looked at as a denial of the allegation, then that could void the agreement and litigation could proceed anew. Is that Correct. right? Yeah.
1: Yeah. They can't outright deny. So clearly they're using weasel words to try and uh, to try and have it both ways.
0: That doesn't sound like the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints to me. (laughs) So Widow's Mike goes on. The answer provided does not respond to the direct yes or no question. We've covered that. Enzyme Peak failed to comply with SEC regulations, a violation of Exchange Act law by not filing any forms 13F from 1998 through 2002. We've covered that. Enzyme Peak also violated the law, specifically Section 13F, by filing misstated quarterly forms 13F from 2003 through 2019. That's the entire Shell Company fiasco. And then finally, church leaders caused Enzyme Peak's violations by approving the use of Shell Company solely for the purpose of filing the misstated forms 13F an effort to avoid disclosing church assets. I think that does a very good summary. You know, it's really interesting to me the way it puts it because it's totally right on in this last paragraph that church leaders caused Enzyme Peaks violations by approving the use of the shell companies, right? And the shell companies were approved by the first presidency solely for the purpose. There's only one purpose for these shell companies and it's solely for the purpose of filing misstated forms 13F. Can you imagine creating 12 or 13 shell companies, and the only reason you're creating them is so that those shell companies can file fraudulent documents with the federal government?
1: But that's what happened. That's exactly
0: what happened here. Yeah. I'm glad that's the last paragraph because it's also the last page of the report. There's a few other pages, but those are just the sources for references. But we have been at this for over three hours now. The time has yeah, flown. Sorry, I hope it's flown by for the audience as well. I want to give you a, a chance here, Spencer. First all, I want to thank you for coming on the show this morning and spending this time with me on this great report. But what are your final thoughts that you would like to share with the audience?
1: Um, I don't know. I've got a lot of thoughts kind of going through my head. I don't think that this would have been something if I was still in the church that would have caused me to leave the church, Uh, only because there are bigger potatoes out there to dig up and there's lots of other things that could have been worse, right? But this is a symptom of the underlying systematic cause is what I would say, the problem, the disease that lives within the church, which is that it protects itself and promotes itself at all costs, and sometimes I started feeling like I was the cost. I was the one that was being, uh, thrown under the bus or asked to do things that went against my conscience, um, all on behalf of the organization. And this is a case of that. This is a, a perfect example of that. Um, so I, I, uh, it's just, it's just. It's frustrating to see this type of um, behavior over and over and over again. The world promotes transparency nowadays, and there's just no way that the church is going to be able to get around that. And I think you said at a different point in time in a different podcast that the church will either become transparent or it will be forced to the transparency table. I believe that that was you. And I totally agree with that. I think that the church should just openly agree to being transparent, or else it will be forced to by the public, by former employees, by people who have are more a little more savvy than the non-engineerians that lead it. And so that's, um, it seems to be that maybe I keep thinking they'll go in that direction, they're going to become more transparent, they're going to be willfully, they're going to understand and learn their lesson. And it just doesn't seem to happen. So it gets a little more frustrating each time that these types of things come out.
0: I hear what you're saying, it's 2023. And what we find the church doing is just having engaged in a 20 year escapade of creating all these shell companies for the sole purpose of filing fraudulent forms with the federal government in order to conceal how much money they have so people will continue to pay tithing. So finally they get arm twisted and strong armed to the point where they have to sign off on this order from the sec where they admit the first presidency was involved in it. They have to pay a fine of $1 million designated specifically to the church. In addition to the $4 million that has to be paid by the enzyme peak. And this order comes out, the sec statement comes out and what they have to do. And, you know, they've been thinking about this for a while, they come out with their own press release, which tries to shield the first presidency from responsibility. This is how deeply ingrained the secrecy, the lack of transparency, the desire to not make the church look bad. I mean, how can the church look any worse when the first presidency is involved in defrauding the federal government? But now that they've been found out, they're going to say, no, we really didn't have anything to do with that, which is the entire point of their press release.
1: Yeah, and I don't know what the long game is here. I don't know if it's something where, I I think it's my wife that said, like, the church grows or the church progresses line upon line, precept upon precept, casket upon casket, (laughs) requires some deaths in order to progress. So maybe it's just a matter of time before more people kind of buy into the idea of transparency as being a virtue. But It's, it it is, it's odd to see them like they got caught red handed by the sec. This isn't some, you know, blogger that found out it was the sec. There's no denying what happened. And then they go ahead and they deny it anyway in as strong of words as they could legally. Mm -hmm. And the members have been trained
0: in such a way and indoctrinated in such a way that they are only too willing to line up to believe the next lie.
1: So, and it's odd for me too, because, you know, somebody, let's say that somebody wants to share your podcast episode to say, you know, let's go through the actual facts. They've been, members have been trained to not believe based on source. And I believe that that might be what they double down on as a church, as we move into this era of more misinformation, when AI can create entire videos that are, that are not true. Or documents that are not true um it might be that the church is waiting out a period where suddenly the members cling on even more and even more to church sources because it's the only source that they can believe in and this new movement of ai generation of material and 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 you know this knowledge economy that we're in will fuel members fears that Mm -hmm. they're getting misinformation from other sources. And so they need to, they need to just cling on to whatever the church says.
0: Right. I have thought that AI is the greatest invention for the LDS church that's ever occurred because now that gives them more plausible deniability, or if Bill real is watching deniable plausibility, that's right. (laughs) Right. Because if you can make an image of a church leader, that looks realistic, say things, then What can't you deny now? That's right. Even if it's a real church leader. Yeah. So, say Elder McKay said something a couple of nights ago that the church wants to disavow now. And he said that there are compelling reasons to doubt the truth (laughs) claims of Mormonism. Now, not only can they take it down or change it, by the way, it's been saved by many, many people, including myself. So, that's not going to work. But then they can just say, well, you know, these other people have it, but
1: AI. Yeah, they'll say, is it on the church's website? And you could show them the wayback machine, but then you'll say, okay, but is that really the wayback machine? It's just, you can get into conspiratorial thinking and easily compartmentalize so that like whatever is negative information is not trustworthy. And it's a dangerous road that we could be heading down. But I I just wish that the church would just do the right thing. And just, there's a good chance that if the church was just good, and maybe not true, but openly not true and good about, and just did good that I'd still be a part of it. I'd still be really active in it. So, and I know, I know what you're
0: saying. And I'll just close by saying it's gotten to the point where the church is so bad that even if it were true, it wouldn't be worth joining.
1: Yeah. It's actually the opposite, right? I care more about it being good. Um, Yeah. yeah, that's right.
0: Well, thank you once again, Spencer, for coming on the show today. I'll sign off now by saying that's about all for now. Excuse me. Maybe we will go back and change that one. That's about <laughs> <laughs> everything else will be edit free. Okay. But that's about all for now. Thank you again, Spencer Anderson from the University of Illinois, coming in to share your thoughts, your perspectives, your experience on this bombshell podcast and this bombshell report from the widow's Might. Until next time, this is Radio Free Mormon signing off the air.